This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parking or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop off could be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Love strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen proudly sponsored by the stfc official supporters club rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot oh, I am very well, very excited to be talking to yourself because you are one of the few people, number four, the first game I went to. So I'm happy, always happy to talk to footballers who were who were in that starting 11 in 1990 when I went to my first game. So thank you very much for agreeing to take part. No, no, look forward to it. Um, uh, thankfully, I think you witnessed a, a great side when you were... Uh, uh, did turn up. Can I ask your age when you turned up? What was your first game? <laughs> so it was just after the good times, actually. It was in uh, November 1990. I was okay. seven years old, and that, in my opinion, was too late. But I was living overseas at the time, and uh, visiting my family, right, and, okay. and that was the beginning for me. So, uh, yeah, it was your final stages at Swindon where I, where yeah, I turned up. Uh, it was a month later that I moved on. I think it was around December the 12th. So, yeah. You, well, well, you managed to still see a great side, uh, the, the team from certainly the season before, yeah. uh, in my opinion, uh, was the best all-round team I've certainly um, seen at Swindon uh, and, and, and was involved with and previously uh, and ongoing really. I haven't seen a side better than that, if I'm honest. Fantastic. Well, we'll talk about that squad in a bit yeah. more detail a bit later on, but we'll start right at the beginning when I ask... When you were a child, who was your favourite team and who were your childhood heroes when growing up? Well, it was a bit of a strange mix, really, because um, brought up as a Man United fan, uh, a supporter. Uh, my my uncle had a season ticket. Uh, my dad was a fan. 
George Best, etc., were their heroes. So I was had that influence of Man United. But my issue was I lived not more than probably uh, well. I lived on Main Road, actually, opposite the ground. So uh, Main Road was right in front of my, uh, if anyone listening remembers your Main Road, the house is opposite, that's where I used to live. Uh, and about 15 minutes into the game, um, when the ticket guys were counting their money, uh, the, the turnstile operators, I used to sneak underneath and uh, get into the game. So it was a little bit strange because I was allowed to go and watch the games there, but I was a United fan. I just wanted to watch football, really. And I suppose... Um, George Best was before my time in terms of that but even the likes of Lou Macari were a hero Gordon Hill in terms of Man United players uh, Stuart Pearson etc and then I would be able to go in and watch Man City where I was watching the likes of Asa Hartford um, the big centre-half Tommy Booth Joe Corrigan etc so I could witness them firsthand. so also uh, the training ground for Man City was literally around the corner um, on Platte Lane and uh, we eventually moved from there and moved even closer to, so just within a mile of the ground, really. So I could go to Platte Lane and watch the players train, which I couldn't do, get to the other side of Manchester. So I had a little bit of a weird affinity with City as well, where you see them so close and you and you become attached. But I suppose from Man United, uh, the likes of Greenoff brothers and Stuart Pearson were around my time, Joe Jordan. Uh, but then moving into Man City and watching them on day-to-day basis. And even the little things like, you know, I stand behind the goal at the training ground just on the other side of the fence. And Joe Corrigan every day would ask me how I was. You here again, son. So he became a bit of a hero because he would speak to me. Asa Hartford, because of the name Asa, Scottish international midfield player. So uh, I was drawn to him as well. And Peter Barnes. Who ironically, who uh, fantastic winger at the time, and I had the Peter Barnes trainer. Again, if anyone remembers at that time, which managed to tuck down you at the front of your either trousers, uh, like a little uh, buckle thing that slipped in, and you could kick the ball and it'd come back to you. Uh, ironically, I ended up playing with Peter then a little bit later in, uh, down the line when he joined Man United. So that was a bit of a weird experience. So I had a mixture of both really, but Man United. I've always been the team, so I like being in, in my blood, in in fact. But I had to con my mates as well, who were all big City fans, uh, because they wanted to go to the games. So it's a bit of a double, a bit of a strange one, but they, they still hold uh, you know, a place. But Man United is, 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 is the team. And obviously to join them later on in my career was was uh, extra special. When you were growing up, though, was, was the Manchester rivalry grisly? Was it ugly or was it still at the stage? Because it's famously... For for years and years and years, people would go and watch United on one week, and then the following week they'd go to Main Road. I mean, was was it was it nasty when you were growing up? Was it something to be sort no. of quiet about? It, it wasn't something. No, it it wasn't um, as ferocious. We'll say, uh, and I've been to a Man City game, whether it be Man City playing Liverpool or Man City play uh, Man United playing Liverpool. Uh, the, the simple fact that it's um, Liverpool fans, uh, Manchester, that sort of rivalry. That's where the, the most trouble uh, I witnessed was the Manchester-Liverpool uh, games, whether it be City or United or, or vice versa or Everton. So, But, but mainly Liverpool and Man United are the, the main protagonists. But certainly I remember it kicking off and, and witnessing it, uh, Man City-Liverpool, just outside where we lived and then obviously around the ground. So, yeah. But there wasn't that much. I think it's grown a little bit more over the years. But... Um, it doesn't still compare to the rivalry between uh, certainly Liverpool. <laughs> Absolutely not. OK, so young Alan McLaughlin before Manchester United as a footballer, what are your memories of playing football as a child? Um, joining, um, I was about probably 10, joining the Cubs 
uh, which was uh, it, it, not too far from my house in Manchester, and get my first experience of just going out. We had a half an hour at the end of uh, our, our Cubs evening, playing out on the grass. Uh, and then a friend of mine who, who was also in the Cubs, his dad had a team called St Ambrose. He just started joining in there, uh, playing in our Celtic kit, which was uh, took great pride. It was green, white, uh, obviously green uh, and white hoops. Um, and we ended up going to Ireland and, and going over in 1978 and on a little mini tour out there. So that was fantastic because relatives were out there uh, for one of the boys. Uh, we played in Dork, Dork Stadium. Uh, and it, again, it added to everything really I played for Manchester Boys as well I was very fortunate to be selected right the way through the age groups for Manchester Boys from my primary school and then obviously into my secondary school so that lent to exposure then to uh, the chances maybe to to uh, to be signed by a schoolboy but unfortunately most of the lads around me were getting signed but uh, I was deemed a little bit too small uh, and that's what I was constantly told um, I ended up then playing for a team called Jubilee Boys and we end up with you know being Lancashire champions, but again uh, the opportunity where most of the boys were being signed up schoolboy forms by, as you can imagine, a lot of clubs around the Lancashire area, and I was missing out because you know I was deemed to be too small, and that was always the uh, the excuse uh, along the way. Uh, eventually joined um, a team called Boundary Park Juniors, which you can imagine uh, lends into Oldham Athletic Football Club. A couple of seasons there. Went really well. And then a friend of mine uh, who I was playing with there, uh, I was planning then. I hadn't been picked up by schoolboy by anybody and I was disappointed. And I knew I was a good player, but like I said, and I've said it many times, the age all excuses of uh, height and, and, and being too frail. And then um, I, I, I found out that uh, Chatterton, who was just, out, just, just in Oldham, were playing, Chatterton youth team were playing Manchester United's youth team. So I thought, oh, sod it, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to see if I can get into the team first and try and worm my way and at least to get a chance to play against United. <laughs> and uh, the, the Chatterton manager, I think he realised straight away what I was trying to do. Uh, and we played, um, firstly, Man United at Chatterton. Uh, I was a sub and come on for about the last 10 minutes, didn't impact the game. And obviously, I can't even remember that game, if I'm honest. And then we were going to uh, play them again uh, at the Cliff. Now they were, I think, they were looking at a player who went on to play league football successfully, John Pemberton, yeah. uh, and they were, I think, just desperate to try and get a, a steal on him. And they arranged another game then to play at the Cliff. Uh, and fortunately for me, one or two were on holiday, and it opened up a space for me to play in midfield and, and, and play against United youth team. And on the back of that, I must have done something right because uh, Eric Harrison, the famous youth team coach, made his way down the side of the pitch and started to make inquiries about who uh, the number four was for Chatterton and um, eventually found my mum and dad, uh, asked relevant questions. I told him I was a Manchester school boy and, you know, I'd been in the system for ages and he couldn't quite believe, in his words, not mine, that I, I wasn't at a club. Uh, and he invited me for training, uh, which was amazing. Uh, in the October, I think that was just early October, I went into train with the opportunity to, well, no, you know, it was an opportunity, but no guarantee of anything. And I managed to um, somehow secure a, the very last apprenticeship uh, given out by Man United before it, it morphed into apprentices and YTS scheme players. Uh, and I did enough in that, that period of four months until the, the March time, five months, uh, where I was completely uh, driven, focused. I actually came out of school. Uh, I was told I wasn't, but I had to get from where I was in Didsbury in Manchester 
if anyone knows the area, and then all the way over to the side of Salford to, to, to the cliff, and uh, I had to be there by a certain time, so I decided I was just going to walk out of class, basically. <laughs> did, did it quite discreetly, asked to go to the toilet, and, and they didn't see me again. Now, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, but at the time when you think you've only got one opportunity to uh, to get a chance to play for United or at least get a chance to gain a contract, that's the sort of sacrifice I had to make. So I was never going to be a professor. I was never going to be a a scholar in any way in terms of uh, education-wise, so I just took the gamble. Uh, suffice to say, the school was happy, but um, as long as my mum and dad were okay with it, that's that was that was the plan. And of course, dad was working, and mum couldn't I couldn't sit side saddle on my mum's bike to go all the way <laughs> Salford, so it was a matter of catching three buses. But yeah, um, and it was in right in the middle of March when the decisions were made, and uh, yeah, I, I got the unbelievable news. I was. Um, been offered an apprenticeship at United which like I said when you've been dismissed really from the age of 13 14 has been too small to be given the opportunity based on your technical ability rather than your height and and your physical size uh, is was fantastic and it's something I carry through today as academy manager at Swindon and have done throughout my coaching career that that doesn't matter some of the best players in the world are some of the smallest ones and it's just a matter of being patient uh, with the players because the technical ability which I did have uh, you know removing that stereotypical type of player but United took the gamble on me and it was a unbelievable three years at United where I signed a, uh, you know it is a scholarship now but was an apprenticeship and then um, signed a year's professional contract before my release uh, uh, after three years. You know you're not the first person I've talked to on this where they've had hurdles and obstacles to complete because of their height and I, I just see it perennially as a cop-out and I was really interested because obviously you're working in in youth team football now you haven't let anyone go based on height no definitely not no absolutely <laughs> not uh, we have um we, we've waited um for for players to because obviously everyone matures at different times and you have different issues lots of the, the young players have growth spurts and Osgood slatters with their knees and uh, you know Luke Haynes is an example of that uh, when I first came Luke Haynes who's now uh, hopefully going to be a second year professional after a very successful back end of the season at Chippenham um, I mean he literally couldn't run the lad for 18 months he couldn't put one leg in front of the other and it got him down so much and you know that wasn't the physical uh, that wasn't the height problem with Luke it was more the us as as coaches and understanding the situation and being patient and uh, that's the same with anyone else within the game who might be small at the moment I've got players in the academy who are I've not matured yet uh, and we're we're going to sit and wait now if they're not technically proficient if they're not technically able to deal with the ball then that's a different matter because you've got two combinations going on that they're going to really struggle with but if you've got a player who's technically gifted understands how to use the ball, checks his shoulder, knows when to pass the ball, when he's about to get, we'll say, taken out by uh, a lad who's a foot taller than him and, and has got all-round general awareness, then that's something that we can and, 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 and wait on. And I expect my coaches to be able to pick up on that as well. But obviously I have the, the final say on uh, players, etc. And there's plenty of players in the building and, and we reassure parents as well that it's not going to make a difference in terms of decision-making. They have to have all the elements that I would say you require to be a, a scholar in terms of mental. Uh, we can develop the physical, 
the psychological thing I think is the most important thing because if you even if you're small and you're still brave enough to go and get the ball when it's difficult and, and, and players are bigger, taller, stronger around you, if you've still got them attributes, that shows a great deal of uh, the right stuff that I think we need and they will need to have a chance to make it in their career. And, I mean, we can all name a list of players who who, who are world class, who are all under five foot nine, from Messi down to Iniesta uh, to, to to Xavi, play people like that, uh, David Silva. I mean, um, Aguero. These are all players who are not blessed with great height, but have you know, uh, I've had people that recognise the technical still skills that they have. Amazing. Let's go back to United in the sense that. One of the real advantages of doing this is we get to talk about people that aren't, you know, linked to Swindon, but it's great to appreciate them. And I mean, for yourself, as you've mentioned already, Eric Harrison, you know, the the players that he brought through, you know, speaks volumes of that. What what were your experiences of working with Eric? Um, well, certainly um, at the beginning, um, I suppose you, you could argue he might have struggled with um, what, the way the world has, has, has turned around in terms of. Uh, um, the way you act and and force is the wrong word the way you manipulate people into getting the best out of them mm-hmm. he was you, uh, he was in your face in terms of wanting things to be done correctly repetition of exercises praise at the right time criticism at the right time he had a fear factor about him um, he could be quite you know vocal to you uh, and, and I mean in, in a really strong way but it built character um, and of course as we move along from then um, through to now things have changed obviously you can't and you know but Eric did change I, I believe that certainly from I think he'd even dampened down a little bit even with us compared to some of the stories I'd heard from the likes of Mark Hughes and, and Norman Whiteside because they were obviously apprentices uh, just before me, Clayton Blackmore, etc. So they were apprentices before me. So some of the stories we'd hear then. But more than anything, the reason that we respected him because he, he was able and we knew to develop players and he, he trusted you to get the job done. And like I said, he, no one, uh, and, and even now when I'm, I'm doing my work, no one remembers the, the, um, the, the pats on the back you get and the well done. They always remember the, a little bit of a maybe a go you had at them, or you you know you were quite vocal with them, or demanded more from them, and and people become a little bit more flaky now. I understand the reasons why, uh, and we and and that's fine. But there still needs to be that element of respect, and and I think I had ultimate respect for Eric number one because he gave me opportunity, number two because I hung on every word he said because of the players he developed prior to me getting there. Uh, he did then obviously end up and it obviously came into 1992. I'd been left a, a long time by that time and it was a class of 92. But there's lots of players in between then uh, and, af- uh, and after then, certainly when I was there, who went on to make their careers in football because of Eric. I can name David Platt, I can name Fraser, uh, 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 Fraser Digby as, as, as two players who have come through that environment as well uh, and, and been successful in their careers. And we all felt that the respect first for Eric because of his achievements um, and, the, and and the way he kept everything simple I see now coaches who uh, you know post online and post comments everything's ultra complicated and uh, and over exaggerated it's a simple game and if you can master the simplicity of the game which he every day drilled into us 
I mean, the amount of hours we spent in front of the wall uh, at the Cliff Training Ground uh, on a shale pitch, I might add at that time, just kicking the ball against the wall, hitting areas, left foot, right foot, um, little tips about how you strike the ball and then into competitive games. And everything was competitive. There was no soft soap in things, uh, checking your shoulder, awareness, communication, uh, and that was a, a big factor, personality. Uh, that's what he wanted things to show. And he would let you then within the game, within training sessions, develop your own skills by letting you, he didn't coach you in possession, if that makes sense. All the information was given about what you do without the ball, how you react without the ball. And there was tips and, and bits in between. But he let us develop as a group, but everything had to be competitive. There, there was no, you know, uh, we'll, we'll make this airy-fairy, if the button, that makes a way to put it. <laughs> it was full on. And I've taken that into everything I've done. And um, maybe in 20, 30 years' time, you might speak to some of the players who I've worked with, maybe, and they might say them sort of traits are certainly in my coaching methods with the boys. I want, I want things to be competitive. I want every day to turn up. And let's, not, let's, you know, let's get it right. They're, they're working for a maximum. Probably their maximum output is an hour per day of physical energy, real physical hard work, we'll say, in terms of football work. It's not a lot. It's not a lot to expect you to give your best for that hour of really intense work. But it has to be then married up with technical ability, um, the ability to listen, take on board what experienced people say. And um, sometimes that, that can be difficult. And particularly, I'm finding lots of uh, young players sometimes uh, don't have that capacity to want to listen. And they end up being the boys that unfortunately uh, fall by the wayside because they're either listening to, um, all due respect, mums and dads who think they know better, which they don't, agents who think they know better, which they don't, other coaches who used to coach them who think they know better, they don't, um, people who are in, in, in positions who've done and seen it before are not always the best coaches, but they do have sometimes the fine detail that some of the coaches lack sometimes, and that does happen. But, uh, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, I still got letters from him, uh, which he sent me when I, when I moved on. Uh, he was desperate to keep me at United, but um, unfortunately there was a, a voting system at United, uh, so I was told after my release and all the four, uh, the manager, the, uh, the assistant manager, the reserve team manager and the youth team manager, sorry, five, and uh, I think it was the chief scout had to have, a, all had to put their hands up and, and agree and uh, I got four votes out of five. So unfortunately that was my time at United coming to an end, but I think he knew the traits I had. Uh, the ter determination passed that on to Lou Macari then who, who who eventually called me and, and made that call to me. Before we leave United I get to ask questions that you know they can't answer anymore um, a generation or so now whose boots did you clean? I was hoping on the day because that obviously was a, a little little caveat of signing uh, we knew that we had to clean certain players boots and we'd been hearing on the grapevine obviously by then you know there was lots to do. It wasn't just cleaning boots. We had to do everything. But uh, I ended up unbelievably getting Brian Robson's boots to clean. And uh, I was just gobsmacked. Uh, the new balance ones and even just to be in the same room was in was quite scary or intimidating. Although he wasn't like that. You were just, it's the England captain. It's one of your, it's one of your heroes. I'd, I'd watched for a few years and seen. And it was like, oh my God, he's standing in the boot room next to me. And uh, he picked his boots out of, the, of, of his, his, his little uh, cubbyhole area. And he handed them to me. He went, "You're my," uh, he said. He said something like, "You're my boy this season." He says, "Make sure they're clean." He said, "And I'll look after you handsomely at Christmas time." So, uh, which he did. I got fifty pound, which was two, <laughs> weeks, which was two weeks' wages. Um, 
which I couldn't believe at Christmas time. So I was delighted. It got me all my presents for everyone and I had a little bit left over as well. So yeah, Brian Robson was the, the man and uh, luckily I got him. You're very good at this because my next question was how much was the tip? So, you know, £50. Pounds not to... Yeah, he, he obviously knew what our salary was. So, um, of course, some of the other players only gave out, say, 10 or 20 quid or whatever, you know, being a bit tight, I won't name them players. But uh, obviously, England captain, I think he probably had uh, more pressure on him to hand out a little bit more, but he was more than happy. And uh, he's probably loose, probably some loose change in his pocket, really, because he was, but he deserved it. But and I didn't care because I was looking at, I, I was more happy cleaning his boots than getting 50 quid. That makes sense. Getting a couple of pair of boots for him, but we weren't the same size. So uh, I kept him, I think I gave him to a couple of my mates and they couldn't believe it. They were, they were, they were playing local soccer, you know, like Sunday league football with uh, Brian Robson's boots on. So they were delighted. Ron Atkinson's your manager at that stage as well. How how was he during that time? Um, he was okay. We certainly were involved in the first team um, on on a weekly basis, i.e. a Thursday morning. Uh, the first team always played against the youth team, uh, preparing for Saturday. So you'd see him up close and personal firsthand. Um, like I said, at the time, I was a left-back and a right-back then. I even played centre-half a lot of times. Actually, Mark now Quinn down at Arsenal. I was five foot, not even ten at that point. I'm not five foot ten now. I was five foot nine and three quarters, which I am now. And I'm marking Niall Quinn as a centre half. But <laughs> he, he was, he was, he, he was fine. He, he was okay. Um, he didn't, you know. I don't remember him coming watch the youth team on a Saturday morning, which I always thought was a little bit strange. That wouldn't certainly be something Alex Ferguson wouldn't have done, uh, particularly when United are playing at home. You'd expect maybe the first team manager to be there watching uh, in the morning, uh, particularly when it was indoors. He could watch as well from upstairs um but yeah he was okay uh, my problem was I, I had a raft of players in front of me uh, just even younger players like clayton blackmore in, you know uh, welsh international uh, he was a couple of years older than me uh, he just signed off the, off the back of the euros i think john sieverbeck he came in uh, the danish player it was arthur alberson scottish international left back he was still performing at that time. John Gidman, he brought in was someone else. Uh, I think he played for England as well, but predominantly Everton. So there's lots of players. Mike Duxbury, England international. So the club was inundated with uh, defenders in, in fullback areas, which was where I was strong at the time. So uh, I think they, they, he deemed in the end uh, just too many players and I wasn't going to get a look in. But um, they were prepared to give me another year, but it all had to be decided by all five. And unfortunately, I didn't get the casting vote. So... It was quite interesting because I know who the casting vote didn't come from. And then I did meet him further down the line in my career when he picked me up at a hotel as I was going to uh, join Aston Villa on loan. So that was quite an awkward uh, <laughs> driving the car for him after he told me I'd do very well in Division 4, uh, as it was then. And that was his parting shot to me. So uh, I had pissed him off once because uh, I, I did have the gall to answer him back at a reserve game. And uh, he didn't like it. Now, whether it stuck in his craw, I don't know. But I was certainly right when we were playing Man City at at, at, um, at, at Main Road and there's 5,000 people watching. Yeah, and you've got Dave White, the uh, the former... Um, I think he's been a few appearances for England. Yeah, yeah, for City winger, yeah. He's giving you a bit of a torrid time because you've got a centre-half who doesn't want you to, to, to vacate his position because he can't handle the centre-forward. So I got in a bit of an altercation within the first one I had in a dressing room with uh, any sort of manager, really. And he, and he wasn't Eric. It was somebody else, and uh, I, I was going to stand up for myself, and I think ultimately probably backfired for me with him. Yeah, and this is of course pre-glossy 
you know, for want of a better phrase, plastic Manchester United. This is the historic Manchester United. I mean, my best friend supports Manchester United, goes all over the world watching them, and he's raised by his Manchester United supporting dad, who's got all the stories from the 70s and 80s. We got to remember when you're playing for them as as a first year pro, there's one substitute. So opportunities are limited yep. regardless. But you must be tremendously proud that you managed to get that far. Well, number one, just just to sign, like I said, after all the rejections and you know, then to be deemed good enough to sign for Man United uh, was fantastic. Uh, and, and, and I captained the team. I kept for the two years I was there. Uh, we had the England Schoolboy International. Uh, captain uh, as well signed a lad called Simon Ratcliffe who played for Salford Boys and um, that pre-season we trained uh, our first game I think I mentioned it earlier we, we, we played Arsenal and now Quinn was uh, I didn't know obviously playing for Arsenal at that time but I remember travelling down um, travelling down to Arsenal and we were sitting on the bus and we left early on a Saturday morning the game was Saturday afternoon and um, Eric walked down the bus and he, and he sat he, there was a lot of lads he sat down next to me and he said oh you're playing centre half today I was normally played fullback. I said, okay. He said, I've been told they've got a big lad plays up front for Arsenal. He said, and I'm talking, he's really tall. So he said, there's no point competing with him. So he'd give me a bit of a, a tactical talk and, about things. And it was obviously Niall Quinn. He'd, he'd obviously got some information. I'd never seen Niall Quinn before in my life. So when uh, obviously I turned up to uh, the Arsenal training ground, I saw the size of the big fella. Right? It was like, oh, Jesus, how the hell am I going to compete with this? But anyway, uh, whilst sitting next to Eric, I cheekily asked him who was going to be captain for the day for the game and he said I haven't decided and I haven't decided for the season yet I said well I'd like to be captain please and it was probably the most nervous I've been but I thought well if I don't shoot <laughs> if you don't shoot you don't score and he didn't say anything he went down the bottom bus he went you're a cheeky bugger he went down the bottom of the bus and uh, sat there we got to the game and just before we went out I think Simon thought he was nailed on to be sticking the armband on or as it was then putting a bit of tape around your arm and uh, he, he announced I would be the captain and captain for the rest of the season. And that's what happened. So that, again, gave me enormous pride. That, And I think the fact that it put one or two of the international players who were in the squad that we did have, Irish internationals, Scottish internationals, etc., in their place where just a lad from Manchester, he's just joined, he's keen as mustard. He, he's raring to go, if you know what I mean. He's, he's not going to air as a graces. He's just going to get on with the job and to make me the captain. And, you know, we went on then to win the Lancashire League, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the confidence it gave me was fantastic. And again, that goes back to some of the man management skills that he did also have, as well as being a, a damn good coach and a motivator and, and an organiser of a team. Um, all them little psychological elements certainly helped. Here's Bowley. Far side is Bowden. Bowden's cross. Up in the air. Belgate. Punches away, comes to McLaren who hits it through a crowd of players and he's found a net. That could well be the winning goal with just three and a half minutes remaining of extra time. Ross McLaren, his third goal of the season, second in the Littlewoods Cup, through a crowd of Bolton players and into the back of the net. Let's talk about Swindon then. So, you know, this is before my time of following Swindon. So I'm really excited and eager to learn. I do my research, but you give you give me the colour and this is what I'm looking forward to. So, you know, to the untrained eye, I see Alan McLaughlin, Manchester United, and I see Lou Macari, Manchester United legend. And I simply assume this is how the, the romance begins. Is that the case or is there a bit more to it? 
Um, not really. I, I don't think. I mean, Lou, Lou was coming to the end of his career at United when when I joined. He probably was about thirty four at that point when I joined as a sixteen year old. I'm guessing that sort of age. Um, we did end up playing in the reserves together. I remember playing uh, at Everton. Lou, Lou actually played right back, believe it or not, and I played left back. And uh, I had the team sheet from that from that game. Uh, so I played maybe three or four reserve games with him. But I, th- I, seemed, I think it was the fact that he obviously moved on to Swindon then. Uh, obviously kept in touch with uh, United. Um, uh, and maybe, I don't know whether he was obviously trying to get long players in. That's certain things. I think the long system obviously a, a lot different than it is now. But he kept that contact, and then uh, certainly when I got released, I'm I'm guessing he ne- he never told me directly, but I'm guessing Eric would have phoned him and got hold of him and said, "Look, you know, the club have released Alan. Um, what are your thoughts?" And the story got well. I won't go into the whole thing, but basically, I I was released. I got the opportunity to go with Stoke to France on a, a little tour, and we actually went with Oldham. So we went on the coach with Oldham. Uh, to France, went to a tournament. I ended up getting player of the tournament, hoping to sign for Stoke. Nothing happened, um, which I was a surprise with. I said I won't go into the whole thing with that, but um, I ended up, again, another shouting match with the, the, the Stoke boss at the time, under-18s manager, Mr Tony Lacey. Told him where he could stick his under-18s. And uh, Joe Royal was under the boss and actually told me to pipe down. Uh, I can't swear, I won't swear on air, but I told him to off. And um, then I regretted it because I realised I've got to try and get a trial with Oldham now. And I asked him to come off the bus. I said, I'm, I apologise for swearing. I said, would you mind if I come for a trial? He said, I'll think about it. But in the meantime, Lou had, about a week later, I got a phone call out of the blue sitting in my house and it was from, from Lou. And he said, uh, he said would, would, would I come for a, uh, a month's trial? And, of course, I snapped his hand off. I said, of course I would. I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, we're going to uh, Malta in two days' time. Bring, bring a, We're going pre-season your, your book to go as well, if you agree. I said, oh, I'd love to. So I took enough gear, obviously, for the month uh, and arrived down to Swindon. My mum and dad brought me down in the van, my dad's work van, and uh, got dropped outside the, the county ground. Um, didn't know who was around, what was there, no sign of Lou. And the door opened, and I don't know if you can remember, lovely man, lovely person, Chris Scott, popped his head out of the uh, county ground club at the time and asked whether I was okay. And uh, I said, I'm looking for Lou Macari. And I think he looked at me a bit bewildered. uh, And he gave Lou a phone call, and Lou popped down then. And he just stuck me into digs. and ended up being in digs with Kenny Allen. uh, Came in the next day. Uh, It was the next day, coincidentally, was the, 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 the team photo. And, of course, I... Went in the dressing room. The only person I knew was Fraser. Obviously, sidled up next to Fraser. Didn't know anyone else. Lads were kind, you know, friendly enough, but they were getting ready and putting their shirts and kit on to go out for the team photo. And obviously, I just sat there because I wasn't going to put a kit on and be that presumptuous. And uh, I remember wandering out, thinking, "Well, everyone's gone. I can't sit in here." Wandered out and looked onto the pitch, and Lou shouts over to me to put some kit on. I'm thinking, "You can't be serious. I can't put kit on. I'm going to look all right, Wally." Stood here. Anyway. The actual photo, it's it's the it's it's still at the county ground. It's in as you walk upstairs, and uh, it's the team photo of the uh, 86-87 season. And you'll see me looking frightened to death because the, I've, I've literally been in Swindon two minutes. I've been in the county ground at least twenty minutes. I'm now in the first team photo. I'm thinking, 
what the hell's going on here? You know, the lads are thinking, well, who's this fella? But Lou being Lou and the character he was, he he, he kept me hanging on for a month. I'd been I'd gone to Malta, played in games out in Malta, did well, settled in with the lads, was fit enough for him. Um, and he kept me for the whole month. He, but he was signing me, apparently, from first day. It, it was it was already done and dusted, but he kept me on tender hooks for a whole month, uh, the sod that he was. And, uh, yeah, I came back and... Uh, he offered me £20 more than I was earning at at, at, uh, at United. My digs were to be paid for. And it was take it or leave it or go back to Manchester and work with your dad on the buildings. On, on, on the, with, with his company, his building company. And so I took the option to obviously take the 20 quid pay rise, which was the best thing I ever did. You and Kenny Allen sharing digs sounds like the ultimate odd couple. He was on a different level, Kenny. Yeah, he loved to play his guitar in, in, in the digs. He was tone deaf. Uh, <laughs> he liked a little sherry now and then. Yeah, we used to try and obviously, as you know, Lou was an absolute stickler for for no alcohol. But, you know, I'm 19. Um, I'm in a new place. We want to go out around the, the town. The only way we could, you know, sort of meet girls or meet up with other everyone else is obviously to go to the pub. But uh, Kenny dobbed us in a few times. Uh, well, he dobbed me definitely once. And we got the uh, the next, next morning, uh, we got our ledger run office by Lou. And he, obviously he... He wasn't very happy with the fact that we were down the pub, uh, up the pub, and asked whether we were drunk. And, of course, we denied that we had a pint. He said, well, you went to the pub and you didn't have a pint all night. Well, yeah, yeah, we just drunk orange juice. And, of course, he's laughing with Kevin Morris, God rest his soul, and John Trollope. Uh, but he he, he, he duly run us. And the only reason I know Kenny dubbed us in, because as we went to knock on the door at the digs, we heard the phone ring. It was like a communal phone in the middle of the hall. And the phone rang, and we put our ears to the door, and we could hear Kenny on the other side of the door saying, no, Lou, they're not back home yet. No, Lou, no, 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 they're not back, Lou. No, no, I'll let you know what time they come in tomorrow. Anyway, of course, then we left it a minute, knocked on the door. Kenny opened the door. And the first thing I said to Kenny was, Kenny, I said, has Lou phoned? No, lads, nothing. No, no, you got away with it this time. I thought, you lying so-and-so. <laughs> so we knew, of course, we weren't going to argue with him, not Kenny, So because he, uh, he, he was quick to... To, to lose his temper, so we just left it at that, really. For someone who's born and raised in the northwest, what was it like moving down to somewhere far more sleepy like Wiltshire? Well, I thought Gorse Hill was the main town centre. <laughs> As I come through from the Moonies, we thought that Gorse Hill was that was it, and uh, of course it didn't prove to be that way. But it was different. I mean, complete change of pace, really, more than anything. When you're used to Manchester. And like I say, I lived in just on the, in, I've lived in place, I mean, mum and dad still do now, live in Fallowfield, and we lived in Moss Side. So uh, you can imagine different cultures. Um, you had to be wary of where you went, what time you went. Um, you had to be wary of different streets and gangs that were around in terms of you can't go down there, etc. But it was still a great place to be in terms of, you know, my, my upbringing and look, learning how to look after yourself. So it didn't, it didn't, pose any fears coming to Swindon. It's just the pace of everything, really, completely different. Uh, I'm still here now. I still live in Swindon now. I love the place. It's fantastic. Uh, I didn't think I'd be still here, you know, this many years later. I came in 1990, uh, sorry, 1986, and I'm still here now. So it certainly holds a, a great place in my heart, Swindon. And uh, my girls, uh, obviously, and my wife are from Swindon, and it's fantastic, but uh, certainly a, a, a big shock. And like I say, um, I was quite thankful that it wasn't Gorse Hill was the main town, <laughs> main town centre. It did expand a bit further past that. But if it was Gorse Hill, it was Gorse Hill. You just get on with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm looking at that picture now um, from 86, 87, and I've got to say, you're sat next to John Trollope and yeah. Lee Bernard, and you do look tense, I must say. I, that... <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know who John Trollope was then. I mean, I subsequently found out about the legend that is John Trollope uh, and the amount of games he played, and, and, and you find out about the club as you move along. Uh, but, yeah, I was very unfamiliar with everyone apart from Fraser. Um, Peter Coyne was obviously a Mancunian, um, and I was I was aware of him after. Again, I wasn't aware Peter was at Swindon. I, I, and uh, I remember when Luke called me, he said, um, he said, uh, will, you, will you come to Swindon uh, for a month? And I said, yeah. And I said, where is Swindon? He went, it's in Wiltshire. I went, where's Wiltshire? Because I hadn't looked at the time. So uh, we managed to find our way 168 miles uh, down the M6 onto the M5 and, and, and to Swindon. And like I say, it's uh, it, it, it's been a fantastic place to be. But surrounding all these people, it took a little bit of time to get used to, to them. But at least I had a, a, you know, Fraser, who obviously we, we had three years together at, at, at United. Um, but you soon make friends with the boys and everyone was great. Peter Coyne straight away. Because I'm Mancunian, he was. So there was two Mancunian accents flying around in there, which obviously got the, the mickey taken out of them. And, and, and the lads generally were great. For, for me, this is, this is the squad that, say, my dad used to talk about a lot because they you know, rejuvenated a fan base, really, because we'd been down in the doldrums for a while. When you arrive, you've just won Division 4 and you've got people like Dave Bamber, Chris Ramsey, Chris Kamara, Charlie Henry, so many players that are huge names in my childhood, even though I didn't see most of them play. And I want to talk about things like your debut and things like that in a moment, but what really stands out in regards to your career for me is something that probably won't happen that much, even though I think maybe we might have it with Ellis Iandolo, is that you, you, for want of a better phrase, was, were a bit of a slow burner at Swindon, weren't you? Where you were given seasons to develop before you really, really got going. Was, was Makari's plan to develop you or were you trying to get into that first team earlier but it just didn't happen well I think I, I was just trying to I was just trying to st- the only thing I wanted to do when I come to Swindon was to to get to a club where I could make my league debut now that's that gets washed away a little bit now nowadays where players play under 23 football and you know they're earning great money doing that and they think that's enough it's not enough I wanted to make my debut in the league to say I'd play the game so that was a motivating factor to come to Swindon and somebody who I knew believed in me and had good information about me but when I came let's not forget I came to a team that I think accumulated 106 points was it the season before something like that a record amount of points so to try and break into a team who was established and would add other players not only me other players would be coming into an established team I knew it was going to be difficult and I knew I had to wait uh, I knew I'd have to play, uh, 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 wait for injuries to happen. I knew I might only play a handful of games that season, depending on on the situation. And that proved to be the case. I think I only played about eight games in the first season. Uh, made my debut uh, at Newport away in a 2-2 draw at right back. So um, I, I think Lou predominantly brought me in as a full-back, left-back, right-back. But uh, I, I played very few games there for Swindon. But to establish yourself as a 19-year-old then, in and you just said it, in amongst some, I mean, Dave, you can throw Dave Hockaday in there as well, uh, Colin Calderwood, Absolutely. Tim Parkin, Steve White, all these were experienced players. And I was 
with Fraser, one of the, the few young lads in that group. So it was quite easy to understand why you, you, you'd be left out sometimes. And Lou, Lou, I think as things were successful that season, the next season as well, it becomes hard to throw a young player in. And he, he knew I was good value for supplementing the squad. And then um, I think I only played about eight games and ended up going down to Torquay on loan. Uh, and it wasn't an option. I, I was told you're going. You know, it's as simple as that. You're, you know, I ended up going down to Torquay and it was the best, probably the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of understanding where I was as a, a person in terms of my football ability, where I was mentally, physically as well, because you're now dealing with lads who are at the bottom of the set, uh, the old fourth division fighting for their careers and fighting for their livelihoods and you're in amongst it. And it, it was a fantastic thing that Lou probably didn't want to do but knew for my development was probably the best thing to do and hoped I'd come back fitter and stronger and mentally probably a bit uh, a little bit more sharper and that's exactly what happened so I've got no problems with that first season whatsoever the second season then uh, my second season again I think he signed John John Kelly came in from Oldham I think or wherever he was and there was more players obviously we just missed out on promotion to uh, Crystal Palace I believe uh, but I did. I think that's right. I think season yeah. two is the year yeah. Aston Villa won at our place, and I think yeah, your season what... three is is Crystal right. Palace. I think Sorry, I'm getting a bit confused. It was a long time ago. I do apologise. <laughs> no. uh, my, my first, obviously, my first full season was was the Gillingham uh, um, game down at uh, Sellers Park, and I was actually on loan at, at Torquay at the time. I actually trained that morning for Torquay. Uh, and I drove all the way back to, to, to try and get on the bus to get to um, uh, the game with the lads. But unfortunately, I missed the bus and had to jump in a supporters car who drove me all the way to, to Sellers Park. And uh, that's how I got to the game. But f- for them to uh, get promotion then was fantastic. And then the following season, then again, I made a bit more of a fist of it. But it was difficult. Again, you're you're a young player trying to establish yourself and you're waiting for an opportunity. And that opportunity came when... Dave Hockaday picked up an injury against Portsmouth. I think we played Pompey twice in a week. And uh, Dave, I was sub on the night. Uh, Dave got injured in the first half, about midway through, and I came on. And uh, as luck would have it, he was injured for a while. That's how it goes. And I established myself in the team. But then when, when he came back, he went to right back and someone else got injured in midfield and I ended up going into midfield. So them little bits of, you know, quirks of fate and, and, and timings were just right for me and by that stage like I said I'd been to Torquay twice on loan now played lots of games scored some goals as well so my confidence was high and I felt I felt a bit better but there's still a nagging doubt about the situation because I remember reading Evening Advertiser once and I think they were talking about players and I was described as driftwood by a fan once we need to get rid of the drift. we need to get rid of the driftwood and uh, I was named amongst the three or four players so that stuck in my uh, craw a little bit I was described as driftwood and uh, I, I remember that uh, going to Sims Chippy and going back to my digs and not being very happy with whoever wrote that <laughs> oh, I, I wouldn't worry about it too much because I've definitely oh, seen it, a newspaper clippings from like 1969-70 where fans are complaining so I wouldn't worry too much it's a bit different nowadays they just get on the phones and give you yeah, so straight uh, to Twitter yeah. thankfully, thankfully you missed all that Kelly is only a couple of yards away but Digby manages to push it one handed onto the bar you're listening to the Low Strangers podcast proudly sponsored by the STFC official supporters club it must have been Cyril Knowles then at um, Torquay yeah it was Cyril Knowles the second time I went there yeah 
was um, Stuart Morgan. So I went for six, I played I played from about mid March to end of um, mid March to the end of well to the early May. Played about fifteen or sixteen games for Stuart Morgan, and I played in the game the famous game down at Torquay where uh, where the police dog bit Jim McNichol, the right back. Ah, yes. I actually played in that game, uh, as did David Platt for Crew, uh, and Dave Platt scored the first goal for Crew, and uh, we went two 0 down, and then we got two goals back. Uh, we're two one down, and then the dog bit Jim. There was about an eight or nine minute delay, and then when we restarted, we managed to equalise, and uh, the equaliser kept Torquay in the league and sent Lincoln into the conference. It was the very first time a team got relegated into the conference so there was a lot of riding on that game not for me because I knew I had another contract at Swindon the next year but I felt I had to do something and I was playing week in week out for them to save these boys skin because that's what it was really because they were dropping into the conference and part-time football where they were full-time professionals so it was a big deal I remember it was a fantastic party we finished 91st out of 92 teams and it was the biggest party (laughs) I've ever that was a good night actually well, I've read the book by um, another former town player called Gary Nelson. It's called Left Foot in the Grave. And he talks about his career at Torquay a few years after you would have played for them. But, I mean, the setup when he was there in the early 90s, it, it, it sounds, you know, National League South in, in, in sort of in, yeah. in, in facilities. Was, was that very much the case? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think we used to train, go on to train at some um, um, school. Um, the kids would be out playing over there and we'd have a little section you know it, it was really bog basic I mean it really was at Swindon at the time when we first come we were shifting around different places you know we were we were down on a, a little pitch on Shrivenham Road which was behind where the tyres were and we were sort of like roaming around Swindon you know different facilities Headland School was another place we used occasionally and there was no one spot and, and training facilities were really sparse so and you know, we've gained promotions out of the extension where it's Foundation Park now. Uh, the lovely 4G pitch, which we do use now, uh, which is fantastic. But that was where we, we trained. You know, you had to go around picking up the dog mess before you started and et cetera. And people would be wandering across and, uh, you know, I'd be out there with, you know, later on in the afternoon with Nicky Summerby, Nicky Hammond uh, and, and other players practising in, in the old goals that were there. You know, no nets or nothing. So, you know, we got two promotions there. So it wasn't something that phased us. But certainly the, the facilities were a little bit more sparse down at um, certainly Torquay. And that's the reason why they were down there, because they just don't have the fan base and they don't have the facilities to, to change things around. It's always, always a struggle. But it, it, was, um, it, it was a great experience. And I went back then the following season. Again, Lou made some signings that summer. Um, promotion was gained. Lou made some more signings and, and, and again, experienced players and that was really the next season, the make or break season for me, really, whether my journey with Swindon continues or whether I have to make a decision to uh, join someone like a talkie to kickstart my career, like Dave Platt had done at Crew. Uh, and Sean Knowles was desperate for me to sign. And he got a bit irate that I, I, I didn't want to commit there and wanted to stay at Swindon. And that was my words to him in the office, really, where I, I think I still got a chance of making it Swindon. And of course, he was saying, you've got no chance of making it. And it's Swindon. They've just signed all these players there. You know, he's trying to he's trying to turn it the other way. What a lovely place to be. Live down at Torquay, you know, and the sun and the, you know, the Riviera and all this sort of like nonsense. But I, I need to get back to Swindon and, and, and try and give it. I, I wasn't going to sort of like give in on it really. And uh, it, it was important. I got back and yeah, my opportunity 
came along in that Portsmouth game, which I mentioned a little bit early. And, and from that moment on, uh, I sort of like was a, I, I didn't miss a game really until I left in uh, December 1990. Before we leave Lou Macari, how, how tough did you find his pre-seasons? Yeah, I mean, on a scale uh, that probably no, no one else would encounter. And uh, it was... It was quite difficult sometimes because you'd come in and just go straight for your trainers rather than going for your boots. Uh, but Lou had his methods. He enjoyed the younger players. I don't think some of the older players sometimes, you know, he, he didn't quite agree with a lot of the bits that were going on because obviously they were more experienced. But he, he was clever and, and um, he was clever in the way he did things and the way we worked. But for example, I can give you a, an example of a Thursday morning a training session uh, that we used to do we would um, we would train on a Thursday uh, on the extension we would be out there for an hour and a half and you remember I mean the trees are unfortunately being cut down and cut back a lot now but we used to do every tree and back if, if you can imagine all the trees along there by the county ground and in between the cricket pitch I mean that's a hell of a shift anyway uh, there's also the track there and he used to live, uh, love us doing on a Thursday four 400 metres, four 200 metres and four 100 metres. So that was a Thursday after training or you do that first and then train. And then, of course, we'd have our usual five and a half, six mile runs around, around Swindon. Uh, you'd be timed. You'd be expected to be back in a certain time. Uh, and he would pair players up. Um, set them off at different times and expect people to be in at certain times. And if you weren't, you wouldn't play on a Saturday or you wouldn't be on the bench. And I've run to be on the bench before. Lou, I think you mentioned the Villa game. He hadn't decided his substitutes. And um, I don't, th- don't think we had anything riding on the season, but the outcome of um, the situation was the two best times um, recorded, uh, leaving the county ground, and it's a five and a half mile run coming back with the two subs. So again, I was making sure I was in that one. And uh, we had some really fit boys really fit boy Steve White Lee Bernard who you're going to um, Fraser Digby probably the fittest goalkeeper at that time probably in the whole world in terms because he did exactly the same as everybody else in terms of um, running but um, it stood us in good stead we didn't realise it at the time and of course the more we won on a Saturday and scored in the 84th minute in the 79th minute the more the players have come in and obviously delighted and go oh, crap we've got to do this again next week because it, it, it proved we just run we just steamrolled teams over in terms of pure fitness in terms of pure being able to get around uh, the park, uh, our levels were far superior to everyone else. Obviously, um, lots of people were afraid to go out and get on the drink as well because of lose reputation of making sure that every pub in the, Swin- in the Swindon area had a hotline to his phone, uh, which they did. And um, he used to dob any of the lads in. So in the end, it wasn't worth doing it. So, you know, you were minus the alcohol intake, which was legendary around them sort of times, whether you're playing rugby, cricket or football. You know, it was it was just a, a norm, if that makes sense. And it was part and parcel of the culture you were in. But uh, we obviously didn't intake as much as probably others and were fitter than others. And that's sort of some good said. And as well as, as well as taking that all aside, had some really good players. So, you know, he picked some fantastic players along the way. He took me to um, um, Newport one night and um, I, he asked me, to drive his car because I saved him digs and uh, of course when Lou phoned the digs I wasn't going to you know, I wasn't going to say when he said what are you doing tonight he used to call me Little Al he said what, what are you doing tonight Little Al I said well well, well nothing Lou thinking oh bloody hell what's he going to ask me 
And uh, he said, can you drive, can you come to the county ground? I want you to drive me to Newport. We're going to watch a player. I want you to let me know what you think. And of course, I, what could I say? And of course, I didn't want the players to know that I was, you know, I didn't want anyone else to know. I said, well, I will, but you can't say nothing to no one else. Of course, he, I, drive, I drove to Newport and inadvertently I didn't know I was going to, we were watching Paul Bowden and he would go through the team at half time and at the end and drive him back in the car and ask my opinion on all the players. And then he'd obviously get to the player he knew he was trying to sign. And um, I, I remember giving Zippy, as we call him, as I call him, and, and Paula, you know, got a great left foot, um, this, this, and this, to get a bit of a glowing report. And then on the flip side, um, he caught me one afternoon early after training and said, um, you need to pick me up tonight from the county ground at about half three this afternoon. He said, uh, and of course, I'm trying to get out of it desperately because obviously I don't want the lads to get wind. I'm, I'm, I'm driving him like some sort of chauffeur. But uh, he said, it's fine. You need to pick up chicken baits. Uh, uh, of course, he's got me under his thumb because I can't say no. I'm a young lad and I'm stuck in digs and he knows I'm not doing nothing. So he's got me He's got me right where he wants me. He said, your assessment of Paul Bowden was very good. He said, but I want you to, I want you to come and we're going to watch the Derby game, uh, Derby, uh, Liverpool versus Derby at, at Anfield. So he made me drive all the way to bloody Liverpool in his big Mercedes and I picked up Chip Bates and he slept on the back seat on the way up. And of course I'm driving this big Merc, which is ridiculous. I'm nervous as hell driving it. But anyway, we get to Liverpool and uh, cut a long story short, we're coming back in the car with Chip Bates and he asked me about the number four for a derby. And I said, oh, he's too fat. I said, can't move, um, blah, blah. It was only Ross McLaren, wasn't it? And... Uh, he ended up signing Ross, got me in the office then when he signed and he said, right, tell me what you told me. Tell me, tell him what you told me in the car. <laughs> I said, what, what did I say? He's going, come on, little Al, tell me what you told me about him in the car coming back from the, the, the Antigua game. Of course, I've never met Ross before in my life and he's standing in front of me. He's got his little moustache and he's looking at me and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is not going to go well, is it? And of course, Lou is just winding me up, isn't he? He's got John Troll up in there. He's got Kevin Morris. He's got Chick in there. So I said, I said, I said, you were fat. And um, <laughs> Ross looked at me. I like, I think he would have punched my lights out straight away. But um, I had to try and explain to him. So it was a little bit frosty between me and Ross for about three days. But we soon got over it. It was fine. When you look at the the last squad of the Macari era, it looked like he really modernized the team and you know the, the the team that you arrived to had the components but it seemed that you know very popular players were being replaced by the Ross McLarens and the Duncan Shearers and things like that and did did you miss because when I spoke to Colin Calderwood I kind of expected him to tell me that his favorite part was like the 90s but his fondest memories of Swindon was the first team that he played for the the mid eighties? Was that the same for you as well? No, I think I think because it was a little bit of a struggle. To, to, I mean, Colin came straight in and established himself and what a player he was, and over you know through a master and not games for Swindon. So I think if you come in and you're straight into the action, if that makes sense, and you're part of something, I had to to bide my time, wait my t- wait for my time, and eventually get the opportunity. So I could see it from the outside because. Sometimes I was in the stands watching the game. Sometimes I was sub. Sometimes, you know, involved, etc. So, 
Um, I'd, the best times for me, I would say, were obviously the Aussie times in, in terms of the way we played, how we played, uh, and the pleasure it gave me. Um, playing for Lou, it was more about establishing myself as, as a professional more than anything. Um, but the uh, the players were equally as, 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 say, equally as gifted. But I suppose Lou moved with the times in terms of moving up through the divisions. He needed a different style and quality of player. Yeah. But um, they weren't always going to fit that. Because when you're in the fourth division and you're fighting for scrapping for your lives and someone comes in like Lou Macari, as Aussie did, you can't help but your draw drop and say, my God, that's a Scottish international. He's played 450 times for United, whatever it was. He's a legend, as we did when Aussie came in through the door as well. So you respect him straight away and you'll do anything. You'll run as fast. You'll do anything to, to, to be a part of it. And when it's successful, it's... It just keeps rolling on. But I suppose at some point that sort of like energy to keep on running and keep on doing exactly the same things uh, week in, week out can become then a little bit of a little bit difficult and you have to start refreshing things. And some of the players you bring in, they don't they're not up to speed with how fit you are. They don't buy into the culture of what Lou was about and how he operated. And it took time again. So for, for Colin, I can perfectly understand why that was his probably greatest time because he led from he led it if that makes sense and and there was an evolving door of success uh, uh, and it evolved and and it revolved as well. But at some point, it's going to come to them because Lou got poached away to to West Ham because he had to pursue something different and then that led on for me to uh, the introduction of Aussie and a completely different um, method and style of operating uh, to Lou. Uh, and it opened up our eyes to a different avenue uh, of way of playing uh, and a way of training, etc. Well, it's only one way you can get fit is to run. And uh, most days we go out here and we run to start with and then, uh, then we play with the ball. But the moment when you found out that this small team in Wiltshire had appointed a World Cup winner from Argentina, uh, who, had, who was a legend of the 80s in, in England as well. Well, like, I mean, like I say, I mean, Lou was a legend anyway. Uh, in terms of me personally uh, and my connection with United and, and, and my affinity with Celtic as well. So he he, he was up there for me and uh, for him to speak to me every day and call me little Alan, have a personal relationship with him and, and him trust me and et cetera, being so young was great. And um, But then when he did leave the passage, and you remember I, I was actually in ho- I was on holiday in Tenerife and I saw it, I bought the paper and saw that he'd gone to West Ham and I couldn't believe it. And of course, then you couldn't get on your mobile and phone home you had to wait etc but then when we come back it was all about then who was going to replace him and we literally had no idea and I remember we were uh, we, we came into training and we were asked to meet in the first team dressing room and um, I don't know if you've been into the first team dressing room at, uh, at the county ground it's not changed much since my day apart from there's there's no little sauna in there no more mm-hmm. which Lou had in there and we, we sat there and I was around the corner where I would normally sit so out of view the door opened and we just heard footsteps coming down this longish sort of like little corridor we have before it opens into the dressing room and we still had no idea at that point and then as obviously he come around the corner I'm looking I'm looking at Ozzy Ardiles and I'm thinking this has got to be a joke and um literally uh, Mr Hillier who was the chairman at the time introduced him I think Gary Herbert was there as well and said, he is your new manager. Have you got a few things to say? Um, and he did his usual line, obviously very happy to be here. Um, the lads are going, what? What's he saying? <laughs> um, 
thought we were gobsmacked. And he literally turned and walked out and he said, uh, get, you know, I think he said, get yourself changed. We'll, we'll start training in, in 20 minutes. And of course, the buzz around the dressing room was like unbelievable. My God, it's Ozzy Ardiles, you know. It's his first foray into the game as well in terms of management. And um, we went outside, we trained on the pitch and he had his kit on and he joined in. I'm literally, I'm thinking, I've just been watching him in the 1978 World Cup. I've just been watching him play for Tottenham when he came. And Tottenham got battered by Liverpool. I think it was 7-0 at Anfield and all the uh, the highs and the lows he had through his career at Spurs. And again, thinking, you know, what where is this going to take us now? Little did we know it would take us into a period of time where, like I said, I was the most happiest playing football in terms of knowing what we were doing, how we were playing the structure of what we were doing and the freedom he gave us to play, but also within some real strict boundaries and how we played as well in terms of what he expected from his players. And of course, then he had the advantage of the squad virtually being the same, really. He took virtually the same squad from the season, previous season. And I can't remember who he, who he might have added into that that group, by the way. I, I can't recall the top of my head, but changed the whole philosophy of, on how we played, really. And... Um, it was uh, it was quite inspiring, really, to to see that he 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 trusted a group of players and 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 made you feel like you could play. It wasn't about just maybe hitting channels, etc. You could play your way from the back through midfield into into uh, into the forwards, and he wanted to play a diamond formation, which hadn't been done before. And uh, luckily, I was a recipient of that that role of being top of the diamond. Yeah, I can only think success-wise or first-team-wise. I can only really think. David Kerslake um, from that from that yes. season. Yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah, I, I mean, think Dave, everybody else. Yeah, yeah, um, I think right there with that because there were some good young players as well. There was Paul Hunt made made his uh, debut, I think, under Ozzy. Sean Close he brought in from Spurs, yeah. uh, who who sort of got a bit, he played a, a few games but really couldn't get in again. It's a bit similar to myself because of the way Steve White and uh, Duncan Shearer performed that season and, and the amount of goals we got as a three, really. So, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a struggle for him. There was a documentary about Swindon from 92-93 and Sean, that's Sean's last season, Sean Close. Oh. And I felt quite sorry for him because obviously they're talking about releasing him and talk, and he's looking for a new club and things like that. And he, he, he never won over the Swindon fans and he was there for so long as well. And I think yeah. he scored a couple of goals. But again, the players he was up against, if you don't take your opportunity, if it's five minutes or the occasional cup game, what more can you do? Well, it's difficult. Well, you know, I think Jorky, Steve got 20-odd goals in, in that season with Aussie. Duncan got similar amount. I got 18 in to- 17 in total from open play. Um, which I'm really proud about, um, and you just—it's difficult to get in, and we were hardly injured, and I think that's a crossover from Lou's time as well, where the the intense training and and, and the physical levels we got ourselves, you know, the next season, although we did train and the sessions were different, we didn't do as many lung busting runs, but there was still we didn't do five and a half mile runs all the time. There was still you know, work that was done, obviously. We just shouldn't turn up, do a five-a-side and go home. But uh, our residual uh, energy levels were always high. And, and I think the lads got themselves in a position where if the training session wasn't as physical, we would do our own bits anyway. Mm. Uh, because we knew, we you know, we needed to maintain the work that Lou had done with us in terms of that because it gave us an advantage. And when you get the likes of Duncan, probably his record that season uh, in terms of games played, Steve's term, I think I played... I think the season with Lou, I mean, I'm up to probably 50-odd games, that 54 games that season. I think Colin got one more than me. 
I think that's yeah. Eighty nine. I think you are technically ever present, but you're a sub in one game. I think Colin yeah. and um, oh, I think there's one other. I think Fraser missed one game, but you play sixty one, but one is as a sub. I mean, that's that's, that's ridiculous, really. You play <laughs> games, and we also I don't know if anyone probably will be able to remember the famous um, cup ties against. Bolton, where we played them four times, yeah. three plays, and you know you playing in them sort of fixtures, and they end up being fixtures that change the the, the scale of uh, and and the, the format of of football afterwards because they realise it was ridiculous, you know, playing that many games to get through a uh, get through a round, but they added to the uh, the mix. But it's amazing, and it always is the same when a team is successful and doing well, and no one wants and things are not on a downward curve. You'll find that. These little mystery illness, uh, illnesses or niggles that suddenly find themselves when you're dropping down the league or whatever, and players in the treatment rooms filled. It was hardly filled the treatment room, and the likes of Sean Close and the, the likes of other players, again only two subs probably that time as well. It's difficult to get into a team that was mainly ever present. I, I can't remember John Gittins missing too many games. I can't remember Steve Foley missing many games. I can't remember Tom Jones missing too many games. Myself, Duncan, it was a settled side uh, and it really was and it was through the season so that made it difficult for the likes of the other boys to establish themselves but hey-ho, you're in there, you've got to take your chances as we did and uh, I wasn't going to complain playing so many games. No, absolutely not and this is your breakthrough season which has loads of reward as a result of it but I mean, it is a dramatic change of for may not be as surprising and I'm not saying that you you were poor in the years before but you go from somebody who's just breaking through to having this outstanding season where you're in amongst the goals in open play as you as you point out and playing all these minutes what what changed the confidence that uh the confidence to uh that Aussie gave me really and not only just me every player he had a he had a different way of going around things uh he made it his his he made it a goal every week to make sure he was engaged and spoke to every player at least once. He or there was nothing negative really from Aussie in terms of um, anything he said. It was all positive, even when things went a bit awry. There was always a positive note to it, and it was it was a change to. I say Lou didn't do that. Of course he did. He was he was positive and he praised the lads, but also he he just believed in what he was doing and. He kept things very simple in terms of, and although we're a great passing side, there was lots of technical work in there, which I hadn't seen before in terms of where he wanted players, how he wanted players to go and press, how we press as a team and stop the opposition from playing. And all that thing, all them them side um, elements of football, which are not seen really probably by the fans sometimes, uh, they only see the the nice pretty stuff if that makes sense yeah. there was a lot of technical work involved in uh, lots of stuff uh, actually training the county ground much to the uh, much to the uh, groundsman's dismay sometimes about finishing at times and recognizing um like having this peripheral vision where you know where the goal is but you know working out the you know behind and the side of the goal which which board uh, is just by the goal so you could your angle of your foot would be that way because you knew the goal. Because you can't always see the goal if it's coming in, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, things happen so quick, people block things. So awareness and visual awareness of the ground itself and um, all these little things that I had ne- never heard of before and didn't practice. And it's just that general belief that you get the players and uh, freedom to go and express themselves. But like I said, 
really clever work with with the way we played in terms of particularly my position because the diamond hadn't been introduced before and i saw the clip recently of when we went to wembley and absolutely smashed uh, sunderland one nil and um i could believe when i actually did pick up the ball i picked it up in a space where uh, i was meant to pick it up just behind the, the front two but sunderland played a flat they played 4-4-2 basically and they thought that with two experienced players in there but even they couldn't pick up where i was and the advice I'd been given about where I where I moved to before going into a space, and the players knew I'd arrive into that area as well. And and we had full backs that overlapped. We had Tom Jones and and Steve Foley, who were just like unbelievable players in terms of knowing what to do at the right time, um, in, in terms of how we played. And we had a freedom about us. We had Ross McLaren again sitting at the base, who could hit the ball anywhere around the pitch he wanted to, and was that protection to allow the. And we're talking about things now in 1990, which are now commonplace. We virtually played three at the back. You know, your two centre-halves and Ross McLaren sitting with our two full-backs as high up the pitch as they could go. And Tom Jones and Steve Foley playing inside, me then playing in a gap and trying to find space and and getting on the ball and causing problems. And uh, like I say, I watched the goal uh, against Sunderland and I find myself in the spot we'd worked on all season to get into and the pass to go into and uh, manage to go on and hit the shot and it goes in. So uh, as much as people say, oh, it took a deflection. Well, you've got to get in that position first. You've got to find the space first. You've got to have the, the balls to go on and hit the shot. And then poor old Chalky that night, uh, that day, and, and Duncan couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo. So I managed to hit the shot and it, it's gone in. But in all truth, you know, if anyone's seen the clip recently, I mean, it could have been eight, it could have been eight nil. Yeah. And it should have been 8-0. It was, it, it was a wonderful game. I think it topped it all off, really. And again, and, and credit to the Sunderland fans. I remember them clapping us coming down uh, down back down towards the tunnel area, the ones that were left, because they, they knew you know, that they'd been well and truly outplayed that day. But Ozzy brought a different style, a different mentality, and he gave you an inner belief. And the thing for me that stood out more than anything, even if he didn't think you were a good player, he made you feel like you're a good player. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I was warned about was don't call it a deflection. And <laughs> no, it's not a deflection. It's a shot that hit another person on on the way. But no, yeah, it's amazing how people want to. Oh, it was a deflection. You know, well, it went in the back of the bloody net at the end of the day, and we should have been. I'd have been more than happy for Chalky to score or Duncan to score that day and whatever. But it was a little bit of fortune that we needed. It cemented the day, really, and obviously, particularly for me. Yeah, I mean, it didn't doesn't have to go into the net in the top corner. I scored enough of them. I scored over hundred goals in my career. So, but that one at Wembley, when you're a kid and you've been to United and you've got rejection, you get accepted. You're standing watching the players train at, at, at you know, at, at Platte Lane and Manchester, Man City players, and you're watching different teams, and you get chances, you get rejections, and and you get people saying you're driftwood. And uh, which is fine. Everyone's got an opinion, um, but they don't know the journey you've been on. And uh, you know, to hit the shot, and he probably would have saved it. I've got no doubt about he had a that. Good game, Tony Norman, didn't he? He was fantastic. He was he was fantastic on the day. But my point is, we worked all season for me to get in those positions to be able to get that shot off, and to be able to create an opportunity for Steve White or Duncan Duncan Shearer, which I would thread to them or someone else would. So it wasn't as if it was a fluke of nature that we got in that position. It was it was something that as a team we'd worked 
to get in those positions and get me in those positions uh, in between the back four and the midfield too. And they just couldn't live with us on that day. And people always struggled with us playing against us because they'd never encountered it before. And that was the beauty of Aussie as well. We were playing something that was completely against the grain from the conforming to your 4-4-2, your 4-4-2. It was something different and uh, it relied on him being able to relay that information to us and then more importantly the players being able to take it on board and and run with it which we did which was fantastic and the disappointing thing for me on that day more than anything was going up the steps and I'm thinking okay where's my medal is he going to put it over my neck in a minute and I was third thinking well Colin didn't get anything Colin gets the trophy and holds it up in the air and I'm I'm looking anxiously down but I think the the medals were shoved back under the earth back under the table because um I think if Sunderland would have gone up to, and won, won the day, I'm pretty sure they'd have got medals over the neck. And that's the one thing that's always stuck in my craw, really, about Swindon. I thought at some point they would have commissioned something for us. Now, I'm not talking nowadays, obviously, but I certainly thought at that point they might have, obviously the demotion became, came afterwards. But And I know maybe finances were short, but I'm sure Don Rogers' shop could have come up with something for us as a token gesture <laughs> if they'd have asked Don to get us a medal of some description to, to say something. But we got absolutely sweet FA from it, apart from just the trophy that we lifted. But at least we said we were there. At least we said we'd gone to Blackburn and and, and, and Steve Foley. I don't know if anyone's seen the goal uh, at Blackburn that he scored. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. So for us to go the whole season and get promotion, although it taken away from us, was um, was was fantastic. Do you think there were medals then? Do you think there, there was this sort of, oh, Swindon weren't supposed to win this? This has yeah. caused a bigger headache. Well, well, they actually knew beforehand. And I know that on good authority because God rest his soul, I spoke to Jim Smith, who was the Newcastle manager at the time. And they obviously played Sunderland in the, in, in, in the semi-final. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, they knew then that if Swindon would have... Obviously, I think what's happened is the information they had and whatever course of action they, they took, they actually took a gamble. Oh, well, there's four teams involved in this. What's the chances? Well, I'm going to have to gamble that Swindon don't make it and don't get to the final and don't win it. And unfortunately, it backfired on them. Instead of being making the decision beforehand, uh, they didn't, um, because it was ongoing anyway, wasn't it? Yeah. So they, yeah. made, they, they, they took the ultimate chance, and, and unfortunately, we, we managed to um, um, yeah, make it life difficult. But it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I don't know about the medals being under there. I'm assuming, and I'm, I was hoping for a medal. We, we must be the only team that's ever gone up and not received a medal at Wembley for winning promotion of some description. I imagine it back in the 60s and 70s or whatever, if that was the case, but it wasn't playoffs then. So I've been trying to see whether the year before us they actually got anything or not, or whether I'm just talking nonsense. The scandal of the season, I mean, what people that weren't around at that time don't really realise is the 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 news reports happen like at the start of the season, don't they? So the people publish their their story right as the season starts. So it's not something that's that's you know brand new and fresh. It's it's always sort of lingered over the season. But the very thought, and I have spoken to a few of your teammates from this time, the the, the thought that they made fans travel to Wembley, put money down for tickets, knowing that they were going to demote Swindon. It's just remarkable. It is, and um, it, it, again, it's it's unexplainable, really, isn't it? That someone and, and, and some organisation and people within that organisation, dinosaurs, as as I think I 
well, I think I called them that at the time, but I'm calling them now, would let it happen, if that makes sense, because they must have had the information, what they needed to have. They could have made a decision before in the playoffs. They could have made it at the end of the season, the regular season before the playoffs. So, unfortunately, due to the X, Y and Z, although your season's terminated now, uh, you will be either on appeal staying in this division or you're demoted, whatever they made, but you're not involved in the playoffs. It will go to whoever was whoever finished seventh or whatever. And that then would have alleviated, there would have been a stink and an uproar, but then the club would have had to defend itself, I suppose. But they just took the ultimate gamble and thought, like I said, that we would get past Blackburn and ultimately thought that Newcastle or Sunderland would be better than us on the day because they finished slightly higher than the league. Um, but it backfired and painfully so. And all them Swindon fans who were paying on the day, yeah, I mean, if it was now, if it was a social media that, you know, you could vent your through your social media, through the, the website, through any forms and mediums, really, they'd be all hell to pay. And I remember Jimmy Greaves, didn't he? Uh, I think Jimmy yeah. had a, a T-shirt on as well, defending Swindon as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go into the, the politics of what happened or whatever, because that's that's old ground, really. But sure. for me to personally to play 60-odd games that season and for it to accumulate in a, a Wembley appearance and accumulating nothing at the end of it in terms of uh, club-wise uh, was, was, was so disappointing in the crosses from the left and the right hand side here's McLaughlin McLaughlin to try a shot it's off Gary Bennett and that is the opening goal Alan McLaughlin we'll take a slight detour now because one of the plus sides of this magnificent season for you is Jack Charlton uh, notices you he's going on his uh, you know granny rule whatever you like to call it but he was known to look around England and find people with Irish heritage. I mean, McLaughlin, he didn't have to look very hard for you. But in the in the later stages of the season, you start, you play a B international, I think. And then there's a World Cup coming up. Three years ago, you were in a, in a game where where a player got bit by a dog and now suddenly <laughs> you go into Italia 90. And there can be no better consolation and no better reward for a good season than going to a World Cup, right? No, yeah, I mean, again, amazing. It was uh, I, I got the phone call uh, the night before the, the, the Wembley game against Sunderland. We were in the hotel in London, uh, just by Wembley Stadium, and the uh, phone went in my room. I'd played a B international, as you said, and done really well in the game, scored the equaliser. We actually played against the Arsenal back four that day. It was uh, Arsenal's back four, uh, but it was, I think it was Dave Besson in net. Uh, but with the Arsenal back four, hell of a team they had. They had a squad of two teams that day, England. And, uh, yeah, we managed to win down at down at Turner's Cross in Cork. And I wasn't able to play in any further games for Ireland because it, with all the games we were having with Swindon and the playoffs and etc., Ireland had arranged friendlies, but I, I wasn't able to participate because of, obviously, the amount of games we were playing in and the situation at the club where we're trying to get promotion. So... I didn't manage to play, which was disappointing, but I wasn't expecting to be anywhere near the World Cup squad anyway. And um, I um, didn't hear anything from Ireland, really. I couldn't turn up to a game against, I think it was Finland, because we were in the playoffs. And that, I thought, was scuppered my chances, really. And then uh, I was in the hotel. The phone went in the room. I picked up the phone. And it was, um, well, he introduced himself as Maurice Setters, as the... uh, uh, the assistant manager for Ireland and of course I thought it was one of the lads winding me up uh, he did the usual thing where you tell him to 
I won't swear again, tell them to F off the phone and leave me alone, stop winding me up, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I put the phone down and then the phone went 30 seconds later and he said, if you put the phone down again, you're not going to the World Cup. I'm being serious. It's more says from the FAI, Jack wants you in the squad for the World Cup. After the game against Sunderland, uh, your flight is booked on the following morning for 12 o'clock from, I think it was Heathrow, and you're flying out to Malta to meet the squad. I mean, I literally had my mouth must have been hanging off the end of the bed. Um, I didn't know what to say. He already spoke to Ozzy, though. So Ozzy was already aware of that. And uh, literally, I got off the phone, stood there in disbelief, picked up the phone, phoned my mum and dad from the hotel and told them, you know, I can't, you know, they were obviously, they couldn't speak either. And the next thing, there's a knock at the door and it's Ozzy and he's got a bottle of champagne and he's got four glasses. And there was him, Colin, I think uh, Ross was stood there, so he's forgiven me for calling him fat, which was nice. And uh, uh, Fraser was in the room as well, so we all had a glass of champagne, just the one glass, and uh, said well done and toasted it, and that was it. And then it was just a matter of getting my mum and dad to drive from Manchester to Swindon, uh, leave a bit earlier, go to my house, pack a case for me so I don't have to do it in the morning. And my mind just sort of like was just... Well, obviously on the Swindon game, but on, my God, I've gone to the World Cup. You know, I couldn't quite believe it. But I didn't understand the circumstances around why I was going. And that was that was for later on uh, in, in terms of a decision he made about um, Gary Waddock, who he put in the provisional squad. He decided uh, after uh, training and games to change that, uh, obviously, to me. And then to go on the next day, obviously, uh, and, and, and us win. And, and we score the goal as well at Wembley. That obviously um, was a helping factor as well. But... Yeah, so I'm interviewed after the game at Wembley. I can't then go to, there's a bit of a celebration back at Swindon at the hotel. I have to go home because I've got to get myself sorted. And I missed out on that. And I missed out the next day, which is a bit disappointing on the little bus parade around Swindon. But uh, I, I had a good excuse anyway. I was I was making myself making my way to the World Cup with just no expectation about anything really. And little did I know I'd participate in two games and come on in the England game. Against Brian Robson. Against Brian Robson, my hero, and I was thinking. All I kept thinking to myself during the game was, well, obviously, the excitement of it. But it crossed my mind: I need to get his shirt at the end of the game. I need to get his shirt at the end of the game. And um, unfortunately, I didn't get his shirt. I got Chris Waddles, but um, which was still fine. But uh, I remember England changing their formation uh, to uh, obviously they they obviously had some information on me, and they brought Steve McMahon on. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but Steve McMahon ended up losing the ball in the end of his box because I ended up just coming on and just every time the ball went forward, I went forward. And if if you anyone ever wants to take the time to to look at the, the action of Kevin Sheedy's goal, I'm about a yard offside. So as he strikes it, I'm in the middle of the goal. Technically now, um, you'd argue whether I was interfering with the goalkeeper, but back in those days, uh, yeah. So I was just a yard offside and I was so relieved when I wheeled away to say I wasn't offside and then went and celebrate with my new teammates. I'd known them about three weeks at this point. But I, I didn't get the, the best reception when I went because they were obviously very close to Gary Waddock. And yeah. I, got the, I got a bit of a cold shoulder from one or two uh, at the time, uh, which wasn't my fault. And I had to go and confront them and say, well, you know, you're going to have to get over yourselves really. That's because it's got nothing to do with me. I didn't realise this situation, you know. But it was typical FAI, really. Didn't really plan things too well. But Jack changed his mind and... And I reaped the benefits, and it was a, a real shame for Gary. Yeah, you have a decade-long, you know, throughout the nineties, you're in and around the Republic of Ireland squad. Throughout your your career, 
And of course, you go to USA ninety four, but I don't think you play, do you? But you do score no. the goal that gets them there in that night. At, um, it's the, the battle of the two ex Swindon players, isn't it? Because Jimmy Quinn scores what he thinks is the winner, and then a few minutes later, you you get the equaliser. And again, these moments. I mean, ironically, um, Jimmy was here at Swindon when I came, yeah. and he he was fantastic to me. Uh, you know, we didn't care whether we were. Catholic, Protestant, or anything. We were just two lads playing football. But he looked after me, and uh, as did Dave Pocker Day. But Jimmy, I'd go round to his house because he knew I was in digs by myself. Um, and he, he would write me, invite me round for, for dinner, Sunday dinner, or we'd go playing snooker. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing coincidence then years later that I actually come onto the pitch. It was um, come onto the pitch at Windsor Park, actually. And Jimmy scores an absolutely fantastic goal, and it get it gets lost in the in the context of the game. It yeah. was probably one of the best goals, international goals he'd scored in terms of build-up play. Uh, it was a lovely little set back to him, and uh, it was a brilliant strike. Paki Bono had no chance, and I remember as it went in, throwing my hands to my head, thinking, "Well, you know, I'd just been on the pitch three minutes, and suddenly I'm on the pitch. He's taken off Ray Hout. We've taken off Ray Hout, and I've gone on there, and um, they've scored." So is that a reflection of me? Is it, you know, and then you think, you know, but they did, they, they made a tactical error. There was a, a, a free kick on the, on the far side and there was only Dennis on the ball and they had two players out there for some bizarre reason. They put two players out, like trying to block uh, a wide, virtually a corner. And they made a real, they made a real hash of that really. And I ended up being on the edge of the box free and uh, it came out to me and I scored. But my time with Ireland, um, over the 10-year period and getting 42 caps, you know, was the most successful, apart from 88, was the most successful period in, you know, Ireland's football history. And when you've got the likes of Roy Keane, Paul McGrath played in midfield, Ronnie Whelan, um, Ray Houghton, Steve Staunton, uh, John Sheridan, to name but a few, Kevin Sheedy, you know, just to be a part of that squad over a period of time and to be selected... Uh, I was selected ev- into every squad for the nine and nine and a half years I was there. I, I was selected for every squad, and that included Jack Charlton and Mick McCarthy. And that I'm really proud of as well. There's a few facts I am proud of, and that is one of them, uh, that I, I made every squad. Because, again, when you've got the likes again then, Roy Keane coming into the equation, etc. You know, you're talking world-class players. And uh, to be in and around it was great. And to be selected week in, you know, month in, month out was, was brilliant. Not always playing. But it wasn't about that. It was about turning up and being deemed good enough to be involved in this group of sometimes world-class players and uh, immensely proud of my achievements to last so long with them. And uh, to top it off, that goal, you know, stands out in Irish history as one of the, the key moments with Paki Bonasseve, Jason McAteer's goal, Ray Houghton's two goals against, one against England and then against Italy. So it's, it's up there with them. And again, that, that, that comes from a period, like, like you say, from absolutely nothing, from playing in a game a few years before that, when, when the dog bites Jim McNichol to, for me being called Driftwood, which I, will stick with me and it always has done, uh, to be out there was, was, was just amazing. And to continue my career, and play as long as I did, uh, and being and represent uh, Ireland for was was huge, and uh, that was that was a lot of it, and, and main lot of it was down to the fact that I started my career properly at Swindon under two fabulous managers. That's what we like to hear. That last bit, lovely stuff. So, I mean, because of all this, 
was it inevitable, regardless of what Swindon were going to do in 1990-91, was it inevitable that you would be leaving at some point over the season or at least at the end of the 91 season? Yeah, I was told pretty quickly, uh, coming back to pre-season, I, I actually came back uh, and had an operation. I had um, a double hernia mm. and that, that took a month to, to heal up. But, you know, after speaking to Ozzy and the way the club we knew financially we now were struggling that a player would go and uh, he was very upfront with me he said you you are the most likely player to leave and uh, he did a, a brilliant thing for me I, I wasn't on brilliant money at Swindon at the time although obviously it increased significantly from my 20 pound pay rise from when I first arrived but uh, he he doubled my wages and he he did that and insisted on that to happen because he felt that would put me in a better position when I went to another club uh, which he forewarned would happen he said, you're the most saleable asset we've got. Uh, if you're here by the end of the season, I'll very, be very surprised. The club is struggling. So I want to try and help you out. The club should help you out because you're coming a free transfer and, you, and, and you're going to go for big money. And uh, I wasn't going to refuse that. Um, I'd worked really hard. Like I said, 60 games. I was progressing. Always gave 100%. And I thought it was the right thing. And they thankfully agreed to it. Although when I left, there was a little bit of discontent from one or two of the board members because I actually asked for what I was due really because I was due a little bit of money from them uh, they were about to get a million pounds and uh, Aussie again very good stepped in knew, knew the players and said well if you don't give it to him then he'll uh, he'll just he'll just put his kit back on and go back downstairs because you, you don't have to accept the transfer if that makes sense yeah. and Aussie yeah. wasn't not going to play me so it was something that was always going to happen so I felt I deserved that um, particularly like I said signed I mean loose you know sign on a free transfer and you end up you know, be sold for a million pound. Pick somebody out. Far post for Shearer. Goal! Yes! Wonderful goal all the way from the moment that Hazard picked him out. What happens next? It's quite funny, and I think a lot of people outside of the rivalry forget this, but, you I mean, you are, you know, there's no doubt about it, you are a Portsmouth legend, but before that, there was a year and a bit with Southampton, wasn't there? Um I mean, you got back to the first division, which is, I think that's one of the reasons Eric Harrison sent you a letter as well. And, you know, it's the only season that you have in the first division, other than there's a loan spell at Aston Villa. It doesn't really, it doesn't really get going, does it, before you go to Portsmouth? So again, I mean, 1990, 91, you must look back at them two years and think, wow, I did so I did so much, like a career's worth in about 12 months. Yeah, it was. And uh, there were some options with that. I, I believe Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday were also in the frame to sign me, but Southampton came up with the, the figure of a million pound. Uh, I actually went to see Chris Nicholl on the, the Tuesday in Southampton. And um, he, as all managers do, and I mentioned it before with Cyril Knowles, they'll blow smoke up your backside, tell you, you know, I was playing again behind the front two. I was told I would be playing by the, behind the front two on Saturday against Aston Villa. You know, we're not spending a million pounds without you playing in your rightful position. Yada, yada, yada. And it was all music to my ears and obviously getting a good contract and signing on fee and the club Swindon being left in a, a great position in terms of finances now. So I felt happy about the situation. I wasn't too far from, from, from Swindon as well. And they were in the first division uh, where I rightfully was hoping to be with Swindon, but that didn't happen. So it all fell into place. And I signed on the Wednesday, trained on the Thursday and was told I'd be playing left midfield in a four four two, 4 2 Virtue's a left winger and uh, on the Saturday. And 
obviously I couldn't say too much at that time. I couldn't be going knocking his door and saying, well, what the hell you, you told me Tuesday I was playing there. So I was, I'd say sold down the river a bit, but I was, I, I played virtually the end of the season then. That was December, but I played every game as a left winger. I managed 25 games, I think, and I scored one goal at Man City. But I was doing the providing. I was crossing the ball. I was, ironically, I scored my only goal for Southampton at that uh, main road, which was ironic. But um, yeah, I was very disappointed uh, with the way things were going on there in terms of, and I went to eventually go and see Chris Nichol after about six or seven games. And I just politely said, look, you know, I was hoping to play, you know, where you offered a million pounds for me you, you've said you're going to play me there you've paid a million pounds can I play where I'm supposed to play and he said oh that'll be next season now if he'd have told me that at the time in December I wouldn't have signed I'd have seen what you know Sheffield Wednesday were about or seen what Leeds were about uh, because I wouldn't have mind if he said to me look you know you, you're going to play left wing or we're going to play in midfield you've got to fight for your place then it was up to me but yeah, that so that was a bit disappointing so it's sort of like it, it, it felt wrong but then, then, one, then when he he got the sack in the um, he got the sack in the uh, in the summertime, and Ian Bramford came in. Now Ian Bramford came in and convinced Southampton Football Club that they were going to change their footballing style and uh, to be more direct. And uh, he brought the likes of uh, Kerry Dixon, David Speedy, uh, Terry Herlock in. So you imagine where we're going with this. It's got a completely different ethos, and Matt Letizier wasn't certainly going to figure in his plans and it was literally ball to the fullback uh, you know ball forward as quick as it could and I was used to that but I was also used to playing a different way with Aussie and the reason they signed me was because I could find space score goals etc I'd done it to them down at the Dell so uh, disappointing and I eventually was walking through the street uh, through Swindon I was in the and I bumped into I think it was Gary Herbert walking through town one day and uh, it was a Wednesday and I was off and I wasn't anywhere near the team, wasn't playing. I think I'd only been involved twice as a substitute. Mm. And it was now we're coming into late September, early October time. And we bumped into each other and I just said, he asked how I was getting on. I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I can't even get near the team. But the ironic thing, I was still being selected for the Republic of Ireland, even though playing for Southampton Reserves, which was a bit was a bit daft. And uh, he said, oh, uh, how many games have you played? I said, oh, about 25, 26 he went, oh, they always 300,000 when you get to 30 games. Yeah. So then it dawned on me the reason why I wasn't playing. It wasn't to do with the fact I wasn't able to or capable of playing. The fact that the new management had come in, I didn't fit the style of profile of player they wanted. And they were trying to obviously not pay out 300 grand to Swindon after after 30 games. So um, I, I knocked the door the next day and we had a stand-up argument. Uh, I think a compromise was made with Swindon in the end. Uh, I don't think they got the four million pounds, but they certainly got near to it. But unfortunately, that was that was it for me. The trust had gone. Yeah. I ended up being yeah. sub a couple of times. Then I was subbed up when it was sorted out against Spurs and came on. But no, it filtered away. And, and again, at that point, then it was the first time I'd really got into a, a a point where I was not happy with the situation, not happy with the manager lying to me for you know just be honest. You know, just say, look, you're not going to play. These are the reasons why we'll look to get something sorted. But I was very unlucky, actually. You did mention Aston Villa. I went to Aston Villa on loan and uh, I joined 
again, ironically, it was Ron Atkinson. Yep. Ironically, yep. the guy who had been the person that didn't vote for me was now uh, working at Aston Villa, and he was the guy that picked me up. So I reminded him about my million-pound move. I reminded him about my World Cup appearances. I reminded him about scoring at Wembley. So uh, he had a bit of a squirmy ride to, uh, take, me to <laughs> take me to body, uh, to take me to the training ground. But I was a bit unlucky because. Um, Deadly Doug, um, the fees had been agreed with, uh, yeah, Deadly Doug, uh, Doug Ellis, had, the fees had been agreed with Southampton. And I got to the very last Saturday. And unfortunately, while I was there, Villa were doing brilliantly. They were near the top of the, uh, as it was, first division. I arrived on the Thursday. It was the same team on the Saturday, no injuries. The same the following week. There's no injuries and they'd won. So Ron was very good and explained the situation. He said, it's not going to make a difference on my decision to sign you or not. And I ended up playing against Coventry in like a Data Zenith Cup game uh, just before we went on international break week. And then I was sub against Wimbledon uh, just prior to, to um, the end of my month. And uh, Ron wanted to sign me. Unfortunately, uh, Doug Ellis decided he was going to sign two German players for the same amount of money. Yeah. So he pulled the deal. So that scuppered my move to Villa, which ironically then wouldn't have meant me going to Portsmouth. But I did take the decision eventually, and Portsmouth paid the money uh, that Southampton wanted, uh, which was over four hundred grand. And uh, I signed for them, uh, knowing very well what I was about to let myself in for. <laughs> as much as I would love to talk about your your years at Portsmouth, we we simply don't have the time. But there are things that stand out for me, particularly. It's very early on. I remember watching that semi final against Liverpool vividly. Um, uh, the windy day, or well, there was certainly loads of ticker tape sort of blowing yeah. around. The late goal that Anderton scored, and then the later equaliser by Ronnie Whedon when John Barnes has that free free kick hit the post, which is which I don't know why it just sticks in my memory so much. And then of course yeah. the following year, ninety two, ninety three, where really of course Swindon go up, but I mean, was it plus six goal difference you miss out on six goals? You level on points with West Ham, and that was such a great opportunity for Portsmouth, wasn't it? Unless you've got the league, t- have you got the stats there with you? I don't know. No. Okay, but I think it was even tighter than that. I think oh. it was one goal. I think there was just one goal between us. Again, I moved from you know a fantastic side in Swindon, uh, which for me is the best Swindon town. And like I said, I watched Swindon town virtually every season since really but like I said the, the team I played in and I know I'm biased is the best in the town mm-hmm. football inside I've, 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 I've played in uh, but then to move to Portsmouth with um, the likes of Paul Walsh uh, Guy Whittingham Mark Chamberlain uh, your young Kit Simons uh, Warren Neal we had a really good team and we we finished way ahead of Swindon uh, as well which, which does happen um, but again we missed out if I'm right, by a single goal to West Ham. Uh, West Ham on the last game of the season were playing Cambridge, who were already relegated, and we were playing Grimsby. We beat Grimsby 3-1 and West Ham, I think, 1-2-1 or something daft like that. Uh, And Swindon cleverly played their weakest team they could, so they avoided us um, (laughs) last game of the season. I'm not sure who they played, but I know it was a team that wasn't going to win the game anyway to make sure they finished um, in fourth place, uh, fourth or fifth place, whichever it worked out. But that's the way you do it. That's fine. But yeah, really disappointing uh, to miss out then because we were, again, a fantastic side. And Guy Whittingham scored 49 goals that year. I got double figures and, and Paul got, Paul Walsh got double figures, over double figures as well. So a very good team. And to miss out 
And ironically, when we played Leicester home and away, we got beat at Nottingham Forest ground, believe it or not. We didn't play at Leicester's ground because their ground was being redeveloped. Mm. And we lost 1-0. Julian Jochim scored in the last five minutes. And then we came back to Fratton Park and I equalised and there was a bit of a dodgy goal by Ian Ormanrod, which everyone claims reports with his offside, but I still can't make my mind up. So we missed out. But we had two significant players missing on the day. That was Guy Butters, the centre-half, and Paul Walsh, who'd got sent off uh, at Sunderland a few games before the end of the season and missed the playoffs. So that was a massive blow for us. And I actually remember going to Highworth on the, the, the afternoon of the Swindon-Leicester game because... In one way, I was slightly relieved that I didn't have to play Swindon in the final because that would have been quite an awkward one for me. Obviously, with my wife being from Swindon and me living back at Swindon at the time, if I'd have managed to score the winning goal <laughs> against uh, Swindon, it wouldn't have been great. But um, but I took myself off to Highworth, to the to the nine-hole course there and played and I didn't listen to anything and it wasn't until I got back in the car that I'd, I'd heard that Swindon had won. So... In one way, I was pleased to win. In another way, I was gutted because we hadn't achieved what we wanted to achieve. So, yeah, it was a quite a difficult season. And again, lots of games played that season with a really good team and Fratton Park bouncing along with eighteen and 19,000 fans as well. So, yeah, disappointed. But I had, a, I had a lovely stretch at Portsmouth. I really did and enjoyed the city, enjoyed the uh, Fratton Park, enjoyed playing there, enjoyed... Unfortunately for Swindon fans, scoring lots of goals oh, against. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say that was my <laughs> next. <laughs> I was gonna say my next observation was that this is when you know I'm a Swindon fanatic. You know, young young guy, um, young kids, 12, 13, 14, 15. and what I remember of Alan McLaughlin is being a giant pain in Swindon's backside. <laughs> for, for well, I actually about... enjoyed being a pain. Yeah, I actually enjoyed being a pain. I remember the four three? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was part and parcel of it. I mean, now that you know, they'd be all apologising to the fans for scoring. No, don't worry about I mean, it. All this nonsense. I mean, Swindon. I didn't have to prove anything to Swindon fans. They knew I loved playing for Swindon. You know, it gave me my platform. It gave gave me everything. But I was now employed by Portsmouth. But you know, I'm doing a job there. I've got to score goals, and I enjoyed every goal I scored against anybody. But again, particularly against your old team, you enjoy it a little bit more if that makes sense. I scored, yeah. I remember scoring, at, uh, we won 1-0 at, uh, at the county ground and it was on, it was a midweek game and I remember Steve McMahon moaning after the game saying, oh, the goal was offside, the goal was offside. He was talking out of his backside. I've seen the goal about 10 times and, and about a yard onside because he's, he's on, his own players won't admit actually I played you on, so they say no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying my lads don't lie. Of course they lie. Who's going to argue with Steve McMahon in the dressing rooms? Put his hand up and say, well, oh yeah, I played him on Gaffer. So I had all this stuff, but uh, no, I enjoyed the, the challenge of playing against um, Swindon. Um, like I enjoyed the challenge, and I only managed it once against Southampton. Unfortunately, lost, which 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 wasn't great, but it's just all. It's just the way it is because I want to go back and show John Trollope that I'm still a good player. I want to go back and show the Swindon fans I'm still a good player. I'm not a has-been. But ironically then, I had the chance to come back uh, just before I retired. But uh, although I did play a couple of reserve games, it was when Roy Evans was in charge and he wanted me to sign. Mm. I just didn't didn't sit right with me because physically I wasn't in a great place. I had terrible problems with my back right, right at the last knockings of my career. I ended up with a prolapse disc and... It just wouldn't have sat right because I was a completely different player then. I couldn't get around the pitch like I used to do. And I just felt it would have, they would have looked at me in a completely different way and gone, well, 
he's not doing what he used to do. Well, no, I'm 34 now, nearly 35. I can't, but it just didn't sit right with me. And I, I declined the offer in the end um, and decided to take the option, although not Swindon and a bit strange, but I took my last six months offer to work with John Hollins at um, Rochdale yeah. because it pained me a little bit. Although I was living in, in the town, it pained me a little bit that I would be playing and not be the person or the player that they'd previously seen. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. And uh, there have been cases over the years where players have gone back and it, it's not the same. And at the moment, it's kind of been myth-busted by, by Paul Caddis, hasn't it? Who is only, you know, only 32 and he's a very fit guy. But the fact that he's come back this season and... Absolutely... He's come back into a good team, hasn't he? Exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's different coming back into a Joe Average team, which it was at the time, if that makes sense, with some really... You know, not great players and a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, etc., which weren't which weren't fantastic. So it just didn't feel right. And I just, uh, but certainly for poor Caddis, I think he's been uh, immense since he's come back. The games I've managed to see, because obviously sometimes it's difficult with the under 18s fixtures, we don't get back in time. But he brings an air of calmness and and uh, quality to the team. And again, more than anything, he stepped into a, a side that's doing well. It's always difficult and you probably don't perform as well when you're spending most of your time on the back foot defending. Yeah. In in, in the final stages of your career, obviously you play for Wigan, Rochdale, and then you, you finish up at Forest Green Rovers. At what point are you, because you work within local media for Portsmouth and you've done Swindon as well, and you're coaching now. What were what was the goal for you when you were winding down your career? When you were working alongside John Hollins, was that when you were beginning to really look into the coaching element? Yeah, well, John, the reason why John asked me to go was because he was thinking about the next season. Um, he asked me whether I could come along to Rochdale and try and propel them into the playoff positions. They'd never, ever been off there. They'd never been there before. And thankfully, we managed that. And unfortunately, we lost out to uh, Russian and Diamonds in, in, in the playoffs uh, and, and didn't manage to get to Wembley. But he wanted me to be there the following season to assist him and, and help him uh, move things along. Unfortunately, the chairman, after John got the club, the Rochdale into, into the first time they'd ever got in the playoffs, decided he wasn't the man for them and appointed uh, Paul Simpson. So that sort of like scuppered that and I, and I headed home um, and decided to, because it, it's very hard to hang your boots up. Mm. You always think you've got one more season in you. You always think you've got 30, 40 more games and you're in the thrill of scoring another goal, etc. But um I was kidding myself to thinking that I could get back to full fitness. And again, it led to my disc prolapsing, which wasn't pleasant. And um, lots of time laying down on the floor for weeks on end and getting myself right. But um, yeah, I think the years and, and, and the toll of the 600-odd games were starting to, to, to take its toll physically. But mentally, you still think you're in the game. But unfortunately, you're not. I think mentally, for me, everything died in terms of my real drive moving forward was when I left um, Portsmouth and went to Wigan, which I didn't want to leave Portsmouth. But again, they got 260 grand for a nearly 34-year-old and a Milan Magic at the time used them funds to sack Alan Ball and Kevin Bond and the staff to bring in his own people, which was fine. But um, obviously I had different reasons for doing it. There's Again, you have to be selfish at this point. There's a bit of a pay rise and I'm nearly 35. And the last thing I, I'll be honest, wanted to do was head up to Wigan. But it meant I could stay with my mum and dad, um, which which was nice. So I spent 18 months there, but it just wasn't right. I just didn't feel, you know, again, you're starting, as any pro will tell you, once you get to 34 and you've been in it since you're 16, uh, as much as you've got enthusiasm in your head for it, your body's starting to tell you different things. And it, it was becoming 
evidently more difficult. And eventually I ended up at Forest Green and tried my best, but I think I only managed about 10 games. And, uh, and I remember jogging around the pitch and um, at Forest Green before it had been redeveloped and came out of the, the little tunnel they used to have us there. And I got halfway around and decided that was it. I, my career was over. I walked across the pitch, walked in, said to the physio, thanks for everything you've done and, and just called it a day. I realised at that point I just couldn't just couldn't physically carry on. I was mentally gone at that point rather than you know, rather than anything else. And I was I was just fighting a losing battle and I was just making myself look more of a, an idiot yeah. rather than being yeah. a, a former uh, international of some repute who now couldn't string two passes together and couldn't get around the pitch, so it was time to call it a day. That brings us now to the the close, really, which is the coaching side. And you've been back at Swindon, what, must be about four years now, is that right? No, it's, it's going to be six years in, six years? Wow, years in January. Runs. My Lord. So, I mean, how how is the project going for you? Because you oversee so so much of Swindon's youth setup, all of it, let's be honest. How How is the project going? Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone really well. Obviously, I didn't expect to be in the academy manager's position uh, when, when, when Jeremy Newton left. The club approached me, and uh, at 51 at the time, it's it was something I'm not going to say no to. Uh, I, I come in initially, Jeremy had me in, and I was working, uh, leading the phase as in the under 13s to 16s. So I had experience of that previously from my days at Portsmouth, working there in the academy department. And then Scott Lindsay left, and you know I was asked to do the 18s, which I did for two years, which was which was great. But now I run the academy in terms of being the academy manager, and yeah, I have lots of, lots of experience in the field. Uh, we we keep the academy run well in terms of it virtually pays for itself, and it has this year with the sale of a couple of players. And people seem to forget that, you know, they're expecting academy players to swing in town to, to pop up every year and be out playing on the for the first team. You know, we train at Lydia Park School uh, and they've been great to us. But, you know, our facilities are Lydia Park School, new college. Thankfully, I've got a new facility which we've incorporated now with the 4G Astro. The Foundation Park is available now to use, which is fantastic. But your best players are sold. So we've got boys that have left the building in the last four years who've gone on to Derby County, Brighton, Chelsea. And they're your best players, which effectively, some of them, uh, i.e. Jaden Bogle, could be affecting the first team now at Swindon, but he was sold on for a profit, as was uh, Jaden Mitchell-Lawson. And there's a couple of boys, a couple of three boys now at Chelsea who've come through, and a boy that's moved on to, to Brighton through our academy. So we have to has it, uh, have it as a working model as well, where it pays for itself virtually every season. That would be something we'd like to get to, but it doesn't always happen every season, but certainly we'd be very productive this season. Uh, and more than anything, we're looking to, and I think our USP, and I've explained it to some of the academy managers that I've met before, and I was chatting to, um, I'm just name dropping here, and I didn't mean, I don't mean to, but I'm, I'm on a course which has a pair Mertesacker from Arsenal, I was paired up with him, and, you know, 75% of our players come from within the 30, 30 mile radius of, of, of Swindon. And um, that's really important as well that we get local talent in and we try to develop them. I'm very keen also to make sure that if you're a, if you're a, a player that plays for Swindon Town Academy, that you have a 95% chance of getting a contract as a scholar. Yeah. Because I don't look to do what other clubs do and only take three under 16s uh, and import players from 
Aston Villa, Man United, etc., into their academies at, 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 and give them scholarships. If you're a scholar, if you're under 16, you will be considered for a scholarship. So it's a USP that we've got, which he couldn't understand and couldn't get his head round that we only do that. But it's it, it it'll work sometimes. It'll not work different times. The staff again, I've got some great staff that we work with. Uh, we try to educate them as much as we can. We focus a lot this year on in, uh, out of possession uh, stuff for the, the coaches, and it's very difficult. You know, we are category three academy. You know, there are restraints, there are restrictions. You know, we haven't got a training ground, which is our own. So, we're again, you know, you're going around the, the town trying to find different venues to train at. And I'm grateful for everyone out that supports us in terms of the likes of Lydia Park, the likes of Bethersbrook, uh, the likes of, like, again, Foundation Park now is a godsend, uh, and New College, who have been fantastic. So, uh, and Swindon, I mustn't forget them, everyone down at Swindon, that they look after us as well through the winter period with, with the young players. So, we, we hopefully build some good relationships. But it is difficult, but we like to think if you're in the academy, at Swindon uh, and I think that's the most important thing you're going to be looked after and given the opportunity to be a scholar uh, which doesn't happen of lots of clubs around us who are importing players from different academies uh, i.e. Um, Premier League clubs who release players so I'm, I'm, I'm determined to keep that ethos in place for Swindon yeah. Town's benefit your fellow Mancunian Richie Wellens is in a situation now at time of recording. There's so much indecision about about football, the football league, and what's going to happen. This must surely be a huge opportunity for these young players to be knocking on the door simply because of the financial element that we may encounter within the game after football. Well, once football can start again. Yeah, you'd like to think so, but they still have to be. Um, they still have to be um, capable and able. Listen, we've got eight, and I'm talking the administrator. We've got eight full-time staff in the academy. That's it. Mm. You know, the rest are coaches who work in the day, who sometimes get up at four o'clock in the morning to go off to work and arrive at six o'clock to take the boys training. So, with limited resources, I think we do okay. Obviously, when these players are sent up to Richie Wellens, which there will be some players this year, you know, I think more now, obviously, they need to be technically proficient, which Richie will expect, uh, but they need to be mentally ready. And I think the ethos will change a little bit. Lots of players coming in can be a little bit flaky. Uh, and again, this discarded society, which I do understand and I do recognise, but, you know, these boys have a year to go into that first team environment and really make a difference and really make an impact. Luke Haynes has done it. This year, although not play the first team game, but I'm pretty sure he's made an impact with the group in, in, in what he can do. Um, there's the, the other players, again, that are going to come through now that it's just a flick of the coin. It really is. And sometimes they're unlucky. Sometimes, like myself, if you reflect back on, on my situation, if the team is being really successful, then it's very difficult for them boys to break into that. I hear what you're saying about that we're going to have to rely on maybe younger players. But um, that's something that will that will pan out in the wash because that will be the same for every other team. Uh, it's what you can forge and what you can do with uh, parent clubs to get players in on loan. As we saw the boy from Huddersfield come in, who I thought was um, is it great? Um, yeah. I thought I thought it was very good, and uh, he 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 showed what what can be brought in. But yeah, it'll all pan out in the wash. I don't exactly know exactly where it's going to go, but I'm certainly hopeful that we can get one or two players forward for. Uh, you know, to make some sort of impression. But it's a really tough task when you, you've got really limited resources, eight staff, limited facilities. We haven't got an abundance of 
techniques we can try to improve things you know limited time with the players as well so but we do our best and that's all we can do and if if, we, if somebody can pop their heads up out of the parapet and, and show themselves and being given an opportunity and sometimes you only know how good someone is until you give someone a chance uh, and that's obviously down to the manager uh, and he'll feel it's the right time to do but I'd like to see hopefully uh, one or two players make their debuts next year and try and establish themselves not in any way of 20, 30 games, but, you know, three or four games through a season, five games through a season to to, to, to show some sort of progress, then that, that would be great. This has been incredible and, I've, and I really thank you for your time. But my, my, my closing question is always, well, it's, it's very common within the conversations that I have here. So when you, when you go past the county ground, when you go into the county ground, you see those floodlights and you look up. What are your memories as a player? What, what immediately comes in? It doesn't necessarily have to be on the field. I think as I turn into the county ground and drive down, I, I just can't believe it, it's the same as it was when I first joined in 86. That lip, you know, opposite the, the cricket ground, opposite mm. the fencing, the facade out the front has changed slightly. But just the makeup of the ground has obviously changed slightly. I remember the old Shrivenham Road side, the stand there and the people at the bottom, we couldn't go up the top. I don't know, it's it's difficult. It's it, it's quite comforting, obviously, when you see the, the, the lights, you know it's there. I reminisce all the time. My family must get absolutely sick to the death of me, really, uh, reminiscing about bits and bobs. It's nice to be in the ground as well, because I work from the ground and work in the ground. And we actually work just by the tunnel. And it's nice to walk out sometimes and just stand at the edge of the pitch, uh, just in my own thoughts about what happened there, that game, what it was like, and reminiscing about stuff. And it's it's, it's great to have it close at hand. A lot of the lads now have moved away, um, and the likes of the the lads you're going to speak to, have, you know, come back and see the county round once in a lifetime. Maybe he might forget all them little bits. He won't forget them, but I I can reminisce every day when I go into the ground. So that's great. And the makeup of the place hasn't changed really at all. So in that respect, it's great. And it's also great for me being a, a former player of. 120 odd games and four years here to be back now doing what I'm doing and hopefully developing players uh, with the staff around me for someone else to be stood in 10 years time out there thinking well I've played out there I've made my debut I've come through the ranks and I've done this and that's our ultimate ge- uh, goal but yeah just the fact that I'm in around the ground every day is, is special because I didn't think like I said in it must have been at the end of June 86 to think I was still be walking in the door in, in June uh, 2020 so uh, for that, I, I, I thank my blessings. Alan, it's been incredible. Thank you very much. No problem, thank you. I enjoyed it, thanks. The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was provided expertly by John Daglish. Thanks for listening. It's a grand old team to play for, and it's a grand old team to see.
Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.